Bell's world in sports. Be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right? Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. What is happening? K-Pos and me, amigos. Me, I'm Owen Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Shalom, konnichiwa, wassalam alaikum. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. An absolutely beautiful day here on a beautiful December afternoon in the year 2020. The year is almost over. Thank you, Jesus. But I hope everybody is doing great. I hope everybody is doing wonderful. I hope everybody is using common sense. I hope everybody is doing what they need to do to make this world, to make this place, to make this community, to make this society a better place to be. We've got a lot of things to talk about, man, in the world of sports today. I want to tackle some college football. I want to get into some NBA. I want to get into some NFL. I even want to talk about, even though it's a program, We've hit absolute rock bottom in the Patrick Ewing era. I even, at the end of the program, at the end of the podcast, I even want to get down and talk about what's going down with the Georgetown basketball team when they lost on Tuesday, the Navy 70-62. to I've uh, <laughs> got my thoughts and feelings about that, so I'll let you know about that. But, uh, you yeah, know, those are the things that I'm going to be speaking about today on the podcast. But I want to begin with some trade news in the NBA. Russell Westbrook traded to the Washington Wizards from the Houston Rockets for John Wall and a future first-round draft pick. For Houston, that is the most paramount future first-round draft pick. Now, the protection on the first-round pick that the Wizards traded to Houston in the Westbrook for Wall deal, they decide to uh, cash it in in the 2023 NBA draft. The pick is lottery protected. 2024, the pick is top 12 protected. The 2025 pick is top 10 protected. And then if they want to wait, if Houston wants to wait all the way to 2026, the pick is top eight protected, then becomes two second rounders. Now, Jonathan Fagan of the Houston Chronicle, he reported that Westbrook wanted to go elsewhere so he can be himself on the floor. Hmm. (laughs) Man, exactly what does that mean? What is he talking about? Could he clarify? Could he define a little bit more when he speaks about he wants to quote, unquote, be himself. Are we talking about the Russell Westbrook that won the MVP where he averaged a triple-double? Is that the himself he wants to be? If so, that Westbrook ain't coming through the door and being that effective. I would like to see the be himself Russell Westbrook be the guy that the second year when he was with Paul George, where George was the guy that was getting most of the shot attempts that I wouldn't say Westbrook was taking a back seat, but you know, he was starting to give more and more of that spotlight to Paul George in terms of the acknowledgement that, hey, you know what, if we're going to have the team that we want to have, the best team that we can be, you know, I've got to be more than just sharing with Paul George. I have to uh, give him a little bit more in terms of responsibility 
at least on offense, with the Oklahoma City Thunder. So with him going from Houston with James Harden and now moving over to play with Bradley Beal, with the team, Tommy Shepard, Ted Leones and such, uh, making a point with this trade that Bradley Beal is going to be the centerpiece, that Bradley Beal is that franchise guy, that the Bradley Beal is going to be the Russell Westbrook of the Washington Wizards that uh, Westbrook would know his role on a team in terms of saying, look, you know, when everything is all said and done, this ain't the Oklahoma City Thunder the way I had it for a couple of years, especially after Kevin Durant left. This is Bradley Beal's team, and I have to let him uh, grow in that responsibility for for as ever long the uh, Beal-Westbrook tandem is there, hopefully for two or three years, but we'll see. We'll see. It was also reported that Houston was in talks with the Wizards about a potential Westbrook for Wall swap last month, but was seeking more uh, more assets, which means that, you know, the two people, the two players in principle were agreed to, Wall and Westbrook, but it was just a matter of, I guess, the Rockets first came out with the, well, we need a first-round pick, and the Wizards said, <laughs> Tommy Shepard says, let me tell you something, man. Harry Grunfeld ain't here. Okay, you're speaking new new day, new era, new change. You know, this is a, this is going to be something else. But what sources told ESPN and what's reported by um, Adrian Wojnarowski that the uh, GM for the Wiz, Tommy Shepard, and Houston's GM, Raphael Stone, had, who hadn't talked in weeks on the deal, connected Wednesday afternoon, and the, done with deal, uh, the deal was done within a few hours. So basically, once again, this wasn't a negotiation where they were haggling and wrangling over what players should be traded or even the foundation of the trade being Westbrook and Wall that was there but there wasn't something else where you know you throw in this guy or you throw in that guy or the salaries were so um are so similar uh are basically the same that there wasn't any need for to any need for any of the GMs to uh, talk about another player or maybe bring another other team to make the uh, contracts and make the money uh, right. So it was just a matter of haggling over, you know, what else are we going to give up? And finally, it came to the uh, came to the point where the Wiz said, okay, we'll throw in that future first-round pick. And, you know, you also have to give uh, Shepard some uh, kudos to the fact that it is lottery protected because even with Westbrook, I don't think that the uh, Wizards are going to be uh, anywhere near championship material. We'll get to that a little bit later on. So Westbrook is going to be reunited with former Oklahoma City coach Scott Brooks. He spent seven years as a player and coach together in Oklahoma City. In fact, Westbrook, that was one of the main teams when Westbrook, if you remember, came out earlier uh, before training camp started and was talking about, I wanted to be traded and I don't want to play for Houston anymore. And James Harden was talking about, he doesn't want to play for Houston anymore. He wants to be traded to the New Jersey Nets. And uh, the organization for Houston came back and said, hey, you know what? We don't mind going into a training camp uncomfortable. I mean, you guys want to come into training camp moping and pouting and throwing an attitude and everything. That's fine. You can go ahead and do that, but we're not going to bow down to your whims. Well, so far with James Harden, the Rockets organization hasn't done that with Russell Westbrook, who they, I guess, figure the less than, less important player on that team said, yeah, it's time for him to go. And again, as I mentioned before, Westbrook, one of the destinations that he wanted to go to, the main destination was the Washington Wizards, again, because the thought of playing with Bradley Beal and being reunited with Scott Brooks, the coach who had the most success, who he had the most success with um, when he was playing for the Oklahoma City Thunder. So, I don't know, man. We'll see. I mean, how many players do you know out there who actually want to play for the Washington Wizards who weren't drafted by that team? 
I mean, no free agents are going to be going to Washington in terms of something of substance. I guess for a community like the Washington Wizards, Russell Westbrook brings some cachet. He'll bring some eyeballs. He'll bring some attention. I'm quite sure there'll be a little spike in season tickets in terms of, well, whenever they start bringing fans back into the arena. So there'll be, there'll be some more interest in D.C. with the Wizards than there was in the last couple of years. Now, one of the reasons why the interest in the Wiz went down the drain so much was because A, the team stunk out loud, and B, because John Wall, their main player, wasn't playing. But now this gives Washington a little foothold in the community. The football team stinks. I don't care what their record is in terms of where they are in the NFC least. The baseball team had a disappointing season. Hockey in D.C. is hockey. Georgetown stinks. Maryland's pretty good, but they're insignificant. The WNBA is the WNBA so, I mean, basically in D.C. or the D.C. area, metro area, which is Prince George's County, Montgomery County, Anne Arundel County, Fairfax, Virginia, Northern Virginia, it's the football team. And then after that, who's ever, who's ever up and down as far as the interest in sports in the D.C. area. So at least this gives, at least this acquisition, at least seeing Russell Westbrook and a Washington Wizard uniform, A, is going to make them better than they've been for the last couple of years, and B, it's going to, it's going to draw a little bit more interest. So, I mean, you know, and let's not, you know, let's not sit here and, you know, talk about Russell Westbrook, not we, but me. I'm not going to sit here and talk about Russell Westbrook is washed up or he's done or he's a shell of his former self. I mean, you got to remember, last season he was third-team All-NBA. His only season with Houston, averaging 27 points, 8 rebounds, 7 assists per game. I know he's 32 years old, and again, everything that hovers over Russell uh, Westbrook mainly has to do with that contract. If Russell Westbrook was playing at a decent contract, well, then I think this would be a much more hip-hip-parade type of trade for the Washington Wizards. But what accompanies Russell Westbrook is the fact that he's going to be making $133 million over the final three seasons of his contract with a player option for the final year. So, unlike John Wall, who hasn't played at all for the last two years because of injury, and he still, he still owed th uh, three years $132 million on his contract, at least with Westbrook, for the short term, we've got the better player. And really, what's the difference between Wall and Westbrook when you're figuring in, they're both making the same amount of money, so either way, the Wizards still weren't going to have less uh, less avenue or more flexibility or whatever to make trades or to rearrange the team or to do whatever, and also because of the chemistry issues that existed between Bradley Beal and John Wall, I think with Westbrook, who, despite the fact that he could be a little prickly, he could be a little ornery, he could be a little, um, let me say, mad black manish uh, toward the media and such, the teammates, and, you know, obviously he didn't get along with uh, James Harden, and, you know, we've seen the beef with him and Kevin Durant when KD decided to leave Oklahoma City and go to uh, Golden State, and one of the reasons people were pontificating was because, well, you know, he couldn't get along with Westbrook because Westbrook shot too much and he was ball hogging and that type of thing. So that deal never went down because of that. So that implied that Russell Westbrook was a bad teammate. But there has been a lot of players who have played with Russell Westbrook, guys like Doug McDermott and um, the Doc Rivers kid. Um, you know, there's a lot of players out there who talk and rave about the type of teammate 
that Russell Westbrook is. And if you're speaking about the Washington Wizards right now, and you have such guys as uh, Rui Hachimura, who's learning, Troy Brown Jr., who's learning, Davis Bertans, who's still learning, the number one draft pick, uh, Denny, Denny Avia, who's going to be, you know, a rookie straight from Israel, new culture, new land, new country, all those type of things. I think in situations like that, Russell Westbrook can be a major asset as a teammate. Victor Oladipo raved about how much he learned from Russell Westbrook, the one year that he played with him in Oklahoma City, and how seeing his work ethic and seeing how he conducted himself as a teammate, he took those skills and he took that experience with him to Indiana and turned out, you know, it turned out that Oladipo had the best year of his NBA career. And he gave a lot of the uh, reason for that to playing with Russell Westbrook. So in this situation, I think Westbrook can really be an asset and he can also teach Bradley Beal. Russell Westbrook has been that guy. Russell Westbrook has been a franchise player. Russell Westbrook has been the face of the franchise, something that Bradley Beal right now is learning how to do. There's another situation where uh, Westbrook being added to the team can be a positive. So yeah, does the $133 million for a guy who's 32 years old who was a shell of his former self in the playoffs when the season um, reopened uh, this past season. He had, I believe he had some knee surgery or he had some knee issues. And he also was dealing with uh, COVID. He had just caught COVID. So he came back. So yeah, he wasn't the same player that he was earlier in the season or midway through the season where that Houston offense, because of their three-point shooting and because of the way they uh, spaced the floor, allow Russell Westbrook to be sort of like a mini Giannis in terms of his ability just to take the ball to the hoop and be aggressive and score and set up others because he finally just skewed going ahead and shooting six three-pointers a game. And head coach Mike D'Antoni was like, hey, man, just take the ball to the fucking hoop. You know, we're going to spread it. We're going to give you that ISO. And for the left elbow extended or right elbow extended, just take it to the hoop and um, force your will and, and doing some things. And during that time, Westbrook played great. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens because of the unique way that the Houston Rockets played. I don't think Westbrook is going to have the lanes and the avenues to do what he was doing now playing with the Wiz. But hey, with Davis Bertans in the lineup and on the floor, with his three-point shooting and the way that he can stretch the floor, Bradley Beal with his three-point shooting and shooting and scoring the way that he can stretch the floor, there'll be ample opportunities for Russell Westbrook to do what he does best if he can if he can just kind of calm himself down from jacking up too many threes. But again, last season was Houston, 27 points, 8 rebounds, 7 assists. That sounds pretty good for me. So, here on Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. What what does this mean now for Westbrook and the Wizards? Because short-term, again, the Wizards did get better. Westbrook, better player than John Wall. He'll work better with Bradley Beal. Michael Lee of the Washington Post, he, he, he uh, tweeted that, again, Westbrook and D.C., that was a preferred destination, intrigued about playing with Bradley Beal, excited to reunite with uh, Scott Brooks. Um, you, know, uh, you know, Bradley Beal's style of play, personality, better suited for Westbrook than Harden's, I believe, because unlike uh, when Russell Westbrook had the ball in D.C., Bradley B will be actually trying to do some things other than just stand in the corner and watch. Same thing that Chris Paul had a, had a situation with 
in Houston with James Harden, where when Harden wasn't in the play, you know, Harden being as ball dominant, ISO heavy as the Houston Rockets offense was and how ball dominant James Harden was. Well, when he gave up the ball with Chris Paul and Chris Paul's trying to call some plays and James Harden is about 45 feet away from the basket watching and taking a, taking a break. And Chris Paul's like, hey, man, what the fuck are you doing? How the hell are we going to score here? Do something. Get in the play. Run some action. Hell, I don't know. You might even get the ball to score. But that was a contentious point between Harden and Chris Paul, that when the play wasn't designed for James Harden on offense, he just kind of checked out. And Russell Westbrook was kind of like the same way. I mean, it was like, you know, when James Harden didn't have the ball, he didn't feel like playing offense. So those were some of the things that... uh drove a wedge in the working relationship, not only with Chris Paul and James Harden, but also Russell Westbrook and James Harden. So now with the Wiz, you don't have to have that problem. When Westbrook has the ball and he's running some plays and doing some things, Bradley Beal, the best player on the Wiz, will actually be an actual participant. Even if the play is not being run for Bradley Beal, even if the play is not designed to get the ball to Bradley Beal with eight on the shot clock and have him... ISO and, and try to score that way. So I think in that situation, it's going to be uh, much better. But basically what this move is for, for Washington, they're just trying to make the playoffs and convince Bradley Beal to sign a long-term deal when everything is all said and done. So now you have the Wiz. Let me take a look at this lineup here for the Wizards. You've got Westbrook at the point, Bradley Beal at the shooting guard, Rudy Hachimura, second-year guy from Gonzaga. He's going to be at the small forward, power forward, whatever forward. Davis Bertans, the free agent acquisition a year ago from the San Antonio Spills, he's going to be the other forward. And then Thomas Bryant, a guy who plays hard, undersized center. Well, what's really undersized in the NBA these days? Bryant, 6'9", 6'10", out of Indiana. Uh, hustles, rebounds well, good energy guy. So that looks like that's going to be the uh, Washington Wizards starting five. Westbrook, Beal, Hachimura, Bertans, Thomas Bryant. Then you've got Troy Brown Jr., Robin Lopez, Denny Avia coming off the bench. I don't know. I, I have no idea. I haven't been to any practices for the Washington Wizards. Haven't been able to spoke, speak to Scott Brooks, and I wasn't in any of their meetings. So I'm, this is just a guesstimation on the starting five and the rotation will be. But if you take a look at that, and you take a look at that team, that a serious playoff contender to you? I don't know. Westbrook Beal, I mean, that's going to be the foundation that's what they're going to try to build around. But take a look at the Eastern Conference. The Milwaukee Bucks, Miami Heat, Boston Celtics, Philadelphia 76ers. They got an upgraded coach with Doc Rivers. Brooklyn going to have Kyrie and KD returning. Toronto still going to be Toronto. Atlanta, they made some nice moves. They drafted pretty well. They're going to be expected to make the playoffs. Lloyd Price, I believe the seat should be getting a little bit warm after two disappointing years in Atlanta as the head coach. Uh, Trey Young, hopefully he's learned how to play a little bit more defense and learn how to uh, tailor make his game to something more than just an and one tape. So we'll see. And you still have Indiana. They're in somewhat of a transition going from a coach like Nick McMillan, who was more ground and pound, grit and grime, Lloyd, uh, uh, Memphis Grizzlies type of thing with uh, Lionel Hollins at the coach. Now they've got rid of uh, Nick McMillan and all of a sudden now they want to be the Houston Rockets last year of the Eastern Conference which means shoot a bunch shoot a bunch of three and how and high tempo and everything like that and I'm saying to myself you're you didn't make any offseason moves to fit that style of play 
Um, and you still have two big men, Miles Turner and uh, Sabonis, and uh, RV the Sabonis' kid. The, 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 the kid's, kid's name starts with a D, but the, the Sabonis kid, they're still, you know, they're two guys at the power forward and center position who are far from speedsters. And we don't know about Victor Oladipo. I mean, has he recovered fully from the uh, injury that kept him out that uh, – that uh, hampered him so much last season. We'll see. We'll see. Malcolm Brogdon's going to be your point guard. I mean, Malcolm Brogdon is not what we co- would call speedy. So the transition that's going to be made from changing your style of play, it's going to have to require some type of personnel changes because with the team that Indiana has now, that ain't going to be happening. But still, you're talking about a guy like TJ Warren, who I suspect now is going to be having, it's going to be given the green light to score an average of 23 to 25 points a game. And so I think Indiana, a team that made the playoffs the last couple of years, I think those guys are going to be in there also. So if you take a look at the top eight teams in the Eastern Conference in no particular order, with starting off with Milwaukee, Miami, Boston, Brooklyn, Philadelphia, Toronto, Atlanta, Indiana. That means the main competition for the Wiz is going to be teams like Indiana, Atlanta, Orlando. Those are going to be the teams that are going to be fighting for that 7th, 8th, and ninth uh, spot in the NBA playoffs in the Eastern Conference. And then teams like you know New York, Cleveland, Chicago, Charlotte, Detroit, they're still going to remain the worst teams in the conference. So... That's the move. That is the move. Basically, the Washington Wizards are building around Bradley Beal to sneak into the playoffs where they can get blasted by the Milwaukee Bucks or the Boston Celtics. Eh. And that's what the move tells the fan base. Here on Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. That, you know, basically the organization is more interested in being mediocre to good rather than tearing it down and trying to rebuild from scratch. I would love to see. We know what the consequences were if Ernie Grunfeld did that. When Grunfeld first came into the position of general manager at the Wizards, the Wizards were just drowning in bad contracts and bad players and bad everything. So what did Ernie Grunfeld do? The good thing that he did was he got rid of a lot of the bad contracts and guys who couldn't play. The bad part is he got rid of those guys and brought in other guys who had bad contracts and couldn't play and was an absolutely horrific drafter. If we can go back and take a look at Jan Vesely over over Clay Thompson, if we go ahead and take a look at trading away for Randy Foy and Mike Miller instead of drafting um, instead of drafting Steph Curry, and we can go on and on and on about the absolute dumpster fire, the absolute horrific D minus F minus performance of the GM that Ernie Grunfeld gave us for the Washington Wizards in his GM position. The man should have been fired five years before he actually got fired, but that's. You know, that's water under the bridge. But I would like to see what Tommy Shepard, who, when he was the assistant GM, he was a guy who the, you know, league officials and everybody else was saying, hey, when the Wizards finally wake up, when Ted Leonis finally decides to wake up and be serious about his basketball team and get rid of uh, Grunfeld, that he doesn't have to go ahead and look for, you know, a high-priced guy or some guy outside the organization. They have a guy in Tommy Shepard who can uh, get the job done in that situation. So, I would like to see Tommy Shepard have the situation where he needs to build from scratch. Now, again, he was talking about, no, 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 no. I'm going to go ahead and we're going to go around Bradley Beal. And the Wizards have, you know, 
turned a deaf ear on all the overtures to go ahead and from other teams to try to get Bradley Beal. I mean, you take a look at someone like the Golden State Warriors, especially when Klay Thompson went down, how beautiful would that have been for those, for that team to go ahead and make a trade for Bradley Beal, especially with those guys holding the number two draft pick. Um, you know, there's other teams that also made overtures in terms of trying to get Bradley Beal. But the Wizards were like, no, 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 no. I don't know if that was a Tommy Shepard call. I'm quite sure it was a Titley Jonas call in terms of no way, shape, or form are we trading Bradley Beal because if we did, that means we're telling the fan base that we're giving up. No, 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 no. That means you guys are trying to start over. And I would love to see after the trade was made for Bradley Beal and we acquired draft picks and some young talent and such. Sound like kind of like what Sam Presti did with the Oklahoma City Thunder when he first went away and he traded Russell Westbrook. And then he traded Chris Paul. And then in between he traded Paul George. And you see all the um, accumulation of draft picks that the Oklahoma City Thunder have. And they have a young guy that they can build around in Shea Gilgis Alexander. I would love to see the Wizards do what the... New Orleans Pelicans did when they traded away Anthony Davis and David Griffin, the GM of the Pelicans, got a boatload of first-round draft picks and set that team up for, you know, the great opportunity to uh, build a really good team. David Griffin already being the architect of a team that won a championship with in Cleveland with LeBron and Kyrie and Kevin Love and such. So I would have loved to have seen the Washington Wizards do the same thing. Now, look, Bradley Beal wasn't going to get the same haul of draft picks as um, um, the uh, Anthony Davis, but you're going to try to tell me what the Milwaukee Bucks paid to get Drew Holiday, that the Wizards couldn't have gotten something even better for a better player who's younger than uh, what the uh, New Orleans Pelicans got. I just wish the Wizards would have done that. But that's all the Westbrook trade is telling me, that, hey, we're just going to go ahead and we're just going to try to make the playoffs. Well, what's the big fucking deal of making the playoffs if you're a seventh or eighth seed? We're not as good as Milwaukee. We're not as good as Miami. We're not as good as Boston. We're not as good as Toronto. I mean, I'm talking about long term. Toronto has better players. Toronto has a better upper management. Uh, Boston, the same thing. You have Jason Tatum. You have Jalen Brown. You have Danny Ainge at the helm. That's a better organization. That's a better structure. That's a better foundation for future success. You have the best player in Milwaukee in the NBA, arguably outside of LeBron James and Giannis Adenokupo. Miami, you have that culture. With uh, Pat Riley and with Eric Spolstra and Mickey Aarons, the owner of that team. And you have that solemn foundation of Jimmy Butler, who's still in the prime, along with an emerging superstar and Bam Adebayo and a really good player in Tyler Hero. So you know that organization is going to be around for a while and be uh, a player for championships for a long time. And you're talking about a market like Miami, that's a free agent destination for the top tier free agents. So that's another obstacle that the Wizards are going to have to overcome. The best thing that you can do is go ahead and build around Bradley Beal by trading for Russell Westbrook. Again, for the short term, all right. It'll get a little buzz, all right. But as I've mentioned before several times, in a year where there's not going to be anybody in the stands, or there's going to be few people in the stands, there ain't going to be capacity. And you know that the teams in the NBA are going to be losing money because the fact there won't be anybody in the stands. If you're the Wizards and you're going to try to stink, what better time to start the rebuilding process by starting at ground zero than to have it in a league in a time period in the league where nobody can see you live play? So 
stinking out loud. So starting the rebuilding process now is not going to really affect you because you weren't going to have anybody in the stands at the beginning of the season to uh, begin with. So that's my only deal, man. We should have gone ahead and tried to make that deal, trade Bradley Beal, get some picks, and start building around him. And, and Tommy Shepard, I trust. But we didn't do that. We didn't do that. Bradley Beal's a good player. Bradley Beal's an all-star. Bradley Beal? Hmm. I'm not putting him top 10. I'm definitely not putting him top 10. Um, Let's talk about now and for the next three to four years. Bradley Beal is somewhere between top, what, what do you think? Around 18 to 25? Best players in the game? Uh, he's, best, I, I don't, he's definitely not top. He's not making any of the all-NBA teams. I think he's, I mean, so if you're not, if you're saying he's not making any of the three all-NBA teams, you're talking about 15 players. So to say that he's three spots away from being a player who's good enough to be on an all-NBA team, that's pretty damn good. But you know what? That's not a player who could be a franchise player on a team that could win a championship. Bradley Beal is not that guy. He's not LeBron. He's not Kawhi. He's not Steph. He's not Kevin Durant before the injury. He's just not. Players much better than Bradley Beal who have, have not won championships at the centerpiece of their team. Giannis, the best player in the East without question, top two or three player in the game right now, he hasn't won a championship yet. Jimmy Butler hasn't won a championship. James Harden, who won an MVP, has not won a championship. Damian Lillard, Mr. Clutch, has not won an NBA championship, one of the best players in the game. I know he's still young. He's only going into a third season, but with the team that's constructed around Luka, he ain't winning a championship. And he here was the guy who finished third in the MVP voting. Anthony Davis had to go from New Orleans to uh, L.A. and team with LeBron. To win a championship. He couldn't do it by himself as being the focal point. As being the franchise guy on the team. Jason Tatum couldn't do it. Chris Paul couldn't do it. What makes people think that Bradley Beal. What makes Tommy Shepard think. What makes Ted Leonis think that Bradley Beal is going to be that guy. Within the next three years you're going to be putting him next to Russell Westbrook. And still have Bertans and Hachimura and Troy Jr. and Troy Brown Jr. and those guys. That's supposed to be a team that's going to compete with Milwaukee. That's going to be a team that's going to be able to compete with Miami or uh, Boston or Philadelphia with Embiid and Simmons and those guys and the way that they've reconstructed their team to add a little bit of shooting. The Wizards are going to be able to deal with that for the next three years. And if you're Bradley Beal, if you're just on the team that's going to be, you know, their, their, their ceiling is making the playoffs and getting bounced in the first round, is that going to entice you to stay? Now you've given up one of your draft picks. I don't know. I don't know. Bradley Beal swears he loves D.C. Bradley Beal swears he wants to stay long-term in Washington. Bradley Beal says all the right things. But I wonder if someone's going to get the Bradley Beal, a player, an agent, a friend, his girlfriend, wife, whoever he's in a relationship with, and just say, hey, man, do you really want to spend the next prime of your years, your last big contract with this team, your best chance to be a guy, to be a foundation piece to winning a championship, to competing for a championship with this team? It'll be interesting. But, again, I, it sounds like I'm doubting and doubting the Westbrook, uh, 
Westbrook trade. I'm not. I'm really not. But still, my deal is you should have broken it down. You started started from zero, and you should have, you should have traded Bradley Beal. If you're not going to do that, I mean, outside of Drew Holiday, I guess this is probably the best thing that you can do. You got John Wall off the books, so we'll see. We'll see. Looking at Beal's contract here, he's still had three years on his contract. Last one of those, the player option at $37.2 million. And now with COVID and now with all the lost money, we don't know what the uh, salary cap is going to look like. So Beal likely will choose not to pick up the final year so he can become, so he can have the security of a longer deal. So we'll see. We'll see. According to uh, David Aldridge, this was written of the in The Athletic. David Aldridge was talking about Wizards owner Ted Leonsis had to make a choice between Wall and Beal and ultimately decided to stick with Beal. Yeah, you think? <laughs> he said, a source told Aldridge that at the end of the day, this is a Ted call. All right. All right. Hey, man, you know, you're, you're an employee. So the owner says, do what you need to do to build a team around Bradley Beal. That is the mission given to Tommy Shepard. Mission Impossible. <laughs> I love myself from Bradley Beal. Good player. Borderline consistent all-star. Not a guy you can build your team, build a championship around. <laughs> the Wizards, I'm telling you, man. Happy, I'm happy that for the first time in a long time that you guys are going to be fighting, scratching, clawing for a playoff spot. At the very most, what, 25% capacity? Because that's the only, at the number, that's the percentage of fans that can watch a team play whenever... We get to that point. We're not going to go back to 100% capacity. We're not going to go back like it was before the pandemic hit. So the Wizards battling and fighting and scratching for a number eight, number seven playoff spot when everybody who follows basketball on DC knows that they're going to get boat loaded, boat rumped, boat rammed by the Milwaukee Bucks or by the Boston Celtics or by the Toronto Raptors or by the Miami Heat. That's what Ted Leonsis wants to do. All right. All right, man. You the owner. But if it was up to me, hey, man, save some room at the bottom with the New York Knicks and the Chicago Bulls and the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Detroit Pistons because we're going to start that rebuilding process. We're not going to be down there with y'all forever. We're going to get up there quickly, especially, man, especially with the NBA draft being so... Um, Rich in talent next season would have been sweet if we could, if the Wizards could somehow get a number three, four, five pick in the draft and maybe get themselves a Jalen Green or get themselves a Cade Cunningham or something like that. A lot of these scouts and everybody are talking about those are the players that are going to be real impact player players if they develop their talent and their potential. So I would have loved to have been in a position to stink out loud this year and be in a position, hopefully, with the ping pong balls to, uh, to get one of those players to really start the rebuilding process. But it is what it is. The Washington Wizards. Let's make the number eight seed. Woohoo! Westbrook Beal. We can do it. Chino como el gringo Ay, qué bonito es bailar 
Hola, mi amigos. Me llamo a Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Que pasa, mi amigos? Chicas, chicas, señores, señoritas. El Telingo. Special dedication. The only reason why I'm playing that song today. Today I was, uh, or for this podcast, today I did a, uh, I did a class. I substituted a class, a dance class over... Well, everything is, you know, at home, so I didn't go over. But the uh, school where, the high school where uh, I was substituting was located. It's located in a extremely heavily populated Hispanic area, Mexican area. It's right next to, uh, close to um, Las Vegas Boulevard and uh, Main Street around that area. It's a couple of blocks away from uh, Skid Row. And uh, I always, I've been going there for years. Enjoy the kids. You know, they break every type of stereotype. Like, ooh, you don't want to go down there in that area. Ooh, those kids are this and those kids are that. Blah, 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 blah. No, those kids are great. I've never had any problem going down to that school and dealing with those kids. Never had a behavior problem. Nobody ever tried to do anything to me or no, so nonsense like that. So very comfortable uh, going down to that school. It's a magnet school uh, too, so. But, um uh, you know, so I was doing this dance class, right? And the fact that the school is located in a heavily populated Hispanic community, about 90% of the students who go there are Hispanic or Mexican. So I'm supposed to be playing all of these songs in terms of they're supposed to be able to dance to it and this, that, and the other. So we got down to the last period today and the teacher had given me some bogus information in terms of what they're supposed to be dancing to. I'm guessing so the um you know the little girl got on the you know the girl got on the um got on the Zoom call or the Google Meet link or whatever, whatever it's called. And she was like, Meester, we're not supposed to be playing that song. I was like, Well, uh, you know, this is what the teacher's supposed to be uh, this is what the teacher sent me, so uh you know, what do you want me to do? Well can we uh you know, can you play us a song or can we give you a song that uh we can dance to that we've been practicing and this, that and the other that we really like? Sure, why not? I mean, you know, hey, you know, go for it. As long as I get y'all moving and doing whatever. Last song of the day anyway. So after this, you guys can log off and do what you need to do. So yeah, why not? So they gave me that song, El Tolingo. They were really good. Really good dancers. And I was grooving on that song a little bit. Very ignorant when it comes to uh, my knowledge of that music and that culture. But uh, I enjoyed it. And I thank them very much for giving me the opportunity to have a song that I really like. I have no idea what those guys are saying. Because I don't speak Spanish, but uh, El Delingo. So that was, I was, uh, I had a high time listening to that song. Wendell's World of Sports and with those kids. Good day today. That's why I'm in such a good mood. You know, dance class over at that high school dealing with those kids. I'm in a good mood today. Got me, got me fired up. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad. That you could be with us. Speaking before we get to some college football and some NFL football. Speaking about this trade with my beloved Washington Wizards trading away their, I guess you could say, one of their most all their, their all time most popular athletes. I don't know if you can put him. I, I no one's ever going to beat Wes Unsell. Wes Unsell's the man, especially what he did for the then Washington Bullets organization in terms of he was drafted by the team. He won the first championship with that team. A Poland, the previous owner of the then Washington Bullets, was a huge basketball guy. I mean, this wasn't something, I mean, basketball, this was when the NBA was still a bomb and pop type of operation in terms of ownership is concerned. So this wasn't a, this wasn't a hobby for 
a Poland and everything. So for him to win that championship, it really meant a whole lot to him. So Wes Unsell brought him that championship and then he became a coach and then he became a GM and he worked for that organization until the day that he died. So I don't know if anybody is ever going to reach the level of importance and fame and you know Washington franchise who's identified most with the Washington uh, franchise, Wizards, Bullets, whatever you want to say, uh, NBA franchise like Wes Unsell. But John Wall came awfully close. Got to remember now, when you're speaking about guys who have done some work for the Wizards or for the Bullets or from that organization, very few have been like homegrown. I mean, that team in 78 that won the championship, Elvin Hayes wasn't drafted by the Washington, then Washington Bullets. He was sent over in a trade. Bobby Dandridge already won a championship with the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, Mitch Kupchak uh, wasn't that huge of a player. Tom Henderson wasn't that huge of a player. So, you know, after the Bullets won that championship and then came back the next year and lost to the Seattle Supersonics in five games, I mean, there were some down times. I mean, bullets. the bullet fever went from beating the Iceman to they couldn't beat anybody for a long time. And you have, you know, the situation with the ruling, Jeff Rulin and Rick Mahorn, you know, the, the Brood brothers. And then you had uh, Ricky Dudley. And then, you know, you have guys trying to win championships by just making ridiculous trades with players past their prime. And that's when the then Washington Bullets were bringing in guys like Dan Roundfield from Atlanta Hawks, who was way past his prime. They brought in Moses Malone when uh, after he won a championship with Philadelphia, and that was way past his prime. So the Wizards, Bullets, whatever the organization, the Washington basketball organization was going in that route for a while. And then, you know, you bring in such guys as Tom Gugliotta and Rex Chapman to trade. It's just been a, a hodgepodge of just bad moves and bad signings and bad players and really not much to cheer for. And we went through some really bad GMs. Wes Sunsell was a horrible GM. John Nash was a horrible GM. Bob Ferry was a horrible... We had a stretch where it was Bob Ferry... <sighs> Did Unsell come before Ferry? Shit, I don't know. But let's put it this way. You had three GMs in a row that had to be the worst three GMs combined in sports. History! When you speak about what's on sale, Bob Ferry, and then John Nash. And just the buffoonery and just the bad moves and the bad draft picks over and over and over again. I remember the year, I believe it was 84, where we drafted Kenny Green in the first round over Moses Malone. And then we drafted, no, we drafted, no, no, we drafted Muggsy Bogues in the first round. And then we went ahead and drafted Manute Bowl. So we had the distinction of drafting the shortest player in NBA history and then the tallest player in NBA history all in the same draft. And I think one year we drafted Kenny Green, the 6'7 forward out of Wake Forest over, I don't know, some guy named Carl Malone, who turned out to be a pretty good basketball player. I mean, the uh, the GM position for the Washington Wizards, you get longevity. Uh, the one great thing about the GM position of Washington, you can stink out loud as a GM. You can be totally incompetent. You can be a total failure in terms of building a championship, in terms of building a team that's competitive with the Washington basketball organization, whether it was A. Poland who brought in Michael Jordan to be the um, president of basketball operations, and he decided to draft Kwame Brown with the number one pick and decided to bring in Richard Hamilton. Well, Richard Hamilton was already there, and he ran him off, and they went to Detroit and won a championship, and 
brought in Rasheed Wallace, and he didn't do anything, and he ultimately won a championship with the Detroit Pistons. So, I mean, if you're a GM with the Washington basketball team, professional basketball team, you can stink out loud and be horrible at your job for for a long time before ownership finally wises up and, get, and gets rid of your ass. So that was the same thing. I mean, a lot of it for Wes Sunsell was just because of what he did. You know, there was a loyalty factor with A-Pol, and that's the reason why he was allowed to be so terrible as a coach and be so terrible as a GM. Bob Ferry, Danny Ferry's kid, played here in um, in the D.C. area. He went to DeMatha, so there was a little something with that. John Nash came over from Portland. I don't know why they kept him so long, but he was ridiculously bad. So it was just been bad GM after bad GM after bad GM. So, you know, when they had Ernie Grunfeld, who I guess you could say really topped them all in terms of the ineptitude of the position that was required to build a championship, you know, he brought in, uh, he drafted John Wall. Not hard. He was the number one draft pick the year the Wizards won the lottery and everybody knew who had a brain in their head that John Wall was going to be their guy. So the Wizards drafted John Wall and, um, he had a good career. He had a really fun career. He'd been, he'd been the best player for that team probably in a couple of decades. So, and John Wall did a lot for Chocolate City. John Wall was himself in terms of, uh, you know, not, um, hiding his blackness, not hiding who he was. Brought a little Allen Iverton to the game where it might be, look, you know, my walk, my strut, my speech, my ways might, uh, offend some folks of the lighter shades or some bougies, but I'm just going to be who I am. And what he turned out to be was a really good guy. If you can look past the ignorance of what you thought someone of that stature should look like. So he did a lot for the community. He did a lot for children. He was a, really a guy who really cared about the uh, Washington DC metropolitan area. Now he made his off season home in Florida, but still his charitable efforts in DC were great. He really embraced the city. This is my town. I'm a basketball player. This is my town. So outside of, I guess you could say anybody on the Washington football team, I guess maybe with uh, the exception of Robert Griffin III, the one year that he uh, lit up D.C. as a quarterback for the uh, Snyderskins, John Wall, even more than Alex Ovechkin, was the most popular player, athlete in Washington, D.C., as far as professional sports are concerned. So, you know, this was uh, this wasn't an easy day. This really wasn't an easy day. And through all accounts, Kevin Durant and others have been talking to him, have been raving about uh, how great John Wall has looked and working out in the summer. And there's been some clips on um, Twitter of him working out in Miami and playing pickup ball and this, that, and the other. And I mean, he looks good. He looks good in the videos. But, you know, we, we don't. The guy hadn't played basketball in an NBA basketball game. In two years, and he's coming off an Achilles tear. He's coming off some pretty serious injuries. So this is going to be a guy, even when he gets to Houston, John Wall, who we know and love, is not going to be that guy. He's not going to be playing 72 games. as In the 72-game season, I would doubt if John Wall would get to 60. He's not going to be playing back-to-backs. He's not going to be averaging 35 minutes a game. He's not going to be averaging even close to 30 minutes a game. So we'll see. We'll see, but I want to thank John Wall, being a Washington uh, Wizards fan, for you know what he did in terms of being the man for the uh, Wizards, bringing them back. I mean, they did make it to the second round. They did beat the Toronto Raptors a couple of years and make it to the second round. They had a very good playoff with the Atlanta Hawks when Atlanta was number one. That's the series where Paul Pierce banked in a shot at the buzzer, and when Chris Broussard... Uh, 
asked him after the game was over in the hype and the euphoria of just hitting that shot when Chris Broussard asked, did you call bank? And Paul Pierce said, I call game. I call game, bitch. I mean, say bitch, but, you know, so, so, you know, we got that. And uh, Wall did a lot to bring Washington back uh, in terms of uh, basketball interest. So we, we thank him very much for that. But he's on his way to Houston. We've got Russell Westbrook. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Now, what does this mean for Houston moving forward? Is James Harden going to be traded? Is James Harden next to be traded? Is it going to be P.J. Tucker and then Harden? And what about, uh, um, what about, um, oh, the kid from Indiana whose name escapes me right now, Eric Gordon. Yeah, thank you. What about Eric Gordon? What about these players? Is Houston rebuilding? Are they tearing it down? Well, what a high-ranking source told ESPN, Houston's stance on Harden has not changed, saying the team hoped to be competitive with him on the roster this season and does not envision a scenario in which Harden would be traded before the opener. Key phrase there is traded before the opener. (laughs) And what the Rockets would require for them to trade Harden, it would mean a package that would include a young potential franchise cornerstone and massive picks, uh, picks package. Something similar to what Anthony Davis got. From the from uh, when the New Orleans Pelicans traded him to the LA Lakers and everything that they got, similar to what the Los Angeles Clippers had to give up when they got themselves Paul George. As, as I mentioned before, I, I don't see anybody in the league having a package of what the Rockets are looking for—a young potential franchise cornerstone. I mean, where, where are we going to be looking at Jason Tatum in Boston, Luka Doncic in? Uh, Dallas, Trey Young possibly in Atlanta. I mean, none of those guys are going to be available. I mean, hell, Jason Tatum just signed a contract, a max contract. He ain't going nowhere. So those are the type. If, if that's the case for Houston, I'm sorry for James Harden. You know, Spencer Dimwitty doesn't cut it. I mean, Karis LeVert doesn't cut it. So your desire to play for the um, new uh, the Brooklyn Nets. James, if that's what Houston is going to be dead set on, it looks like I don't care how much you pout and moan and groan and not show up for practice and not do interviews and everything like that. You, the beers, ain't going no place. I mean, just, just look, as I mentioned before, the package you require for Milwaukee to get Drew Holiday. They gave up f- three first-round picks, two pick swaps, and two rotation players. That's for Drew Holiday who could still be a free agent after the season. So there is no, like, super-duper 100% guarantee that he's going to be staying long-term with the Milwaukee Bucks. That's how much Milwaukee had to give up to get that guy. So if that's going to be the case for Drew Holiday, what do you think the Houston Rockets are going to be asking for one of the best players and the best scorer in the NBA right now? And as I mentioned before in other podcasts, as James Harden being the man on your team, so far that hasn't got Houston's... uh, any championships. He's got him a lot of scoring titles, but hell, they tried pairing him with Dwight Howard uh, at the time, a big time center, one of the top players in the NBA during that time after his debacle with Kobe and the Lakers. That didn't last. They tried pairing him with Chris Paul. That didn't last after, what, two years or three years. They tried pairing him with Russell Westbrook. That didn't work after one year. Paul and Howard and uh, Westbrook all wanted out. So, I mean, I don't know, man. 
what's what's the situation going to be like with uh, what's the situation going to be like with James Harden and John Wall? Because John Wall has a similar game to Chris Paul and Russell Westbrook, which means that when he was last last seen playing, the best John Wall is the John Wall with the ball in his hands all the time, setting up the offense, initiating the offense. That's not uh, conducive to what James Harden does. Now, they have a whole new coaching staff. They have a whole new philosophy and the way to play offense. No more shooting 43s a game and 32 two-pointers a game. No more James Harden dribble, 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 dribble. Shot clock running down, dribble, 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 step back three, uh, 27 uh, foot three pointer. I don't think that, you know, Steven Silas is going to be running that type of offense for the Houston Rockets. Number one, is James Harden going to be receptive to a change? Number two, even though James Harden said that, yeah, man, you know, I'm down with, uh, um, I'm down with John Wall. My preference is to play with John Wall rather than Russell Westbrook. That's what um, Wojnowski said on his appearance on uh, ESPN's Get Up, the Mike Greenberg show. So he said, yeah, that's that's fine. That's what I'll do. All right. Okay. I I exactly don't know what that means. And John Wall is going to be a little bit tricky in terms of he's going to be coming back and playing with a unique type of player like James Harden. Again, we have no idea what type of offense Houston is going to run. And the John Wall that was the that was one of the best point guards in the NBA, the John Wall who was a starter for a couple of years in the uh, All-Star game for the Eastern Conference, that John Wall isn't walking through the door, folks. The player that John Wall is going to be getting, or the player that Houston is getting in John Wall, we have no fucking idea. But I can tell you one thing, it ain't going to be the John Wall when he was in his physical uh, prime. Those days are long gone. Even before he got injured and started missing games, the scattering report, reports were that uh, his speed is starting to slow down. Again, he had to play basketball. He had to play an NBA basketball game since December 26th of 2018. Torres Achilles a year and a half ago. Now, most players come back from an injury like that in 12 months. Kobe Bryant did something like that, came back. But, you know, you had that mama mentality. So, you know. Um, that also that mama mentality, Kobe was, you know, reaching in his upper 30s or in his mid-30s. So, But John Wall is past 30. So who knows? Who knows, man? And as I mentioned before, he was having a difficult time with bone spurs in his knees, which caused him to miss a significant amount of time before the Achilles injury. He missed a significant amount of time with that before he then tore his Achilles. So I don't know. You know, like Russell... John Wall's biggest advantage in his prime was his physical gifts, his speed. I mean, with the ball in his hand, no one was going to be able to get, uh, was going to be able to keep up with John Wall. And his acceleration, he was starting to uh, kind of learn the craft of when to uh, put it in fifth gear and when to just put it in third gear, you know, like, like a fastball, like a pitcher. I mean, you don't have to throw 99 all the time. I mean, you can throw a changeup, you can throw a curve, you can throw a fastball at 92, and then when the when the count is uh, three balls and two strikes, then you throw a heater and put it down the middle or paint the corners. John Wall was starting to do that in terms of learning the shifts and speeds and moves of the game. But uh, I don't know, man. I don't know. His fastball, his fastball now just might be 92. So, I mean, he still has three years and $132 million left on this contract. So, for Houston, they had to get rid of Westbrook. 
And when you're dealing with a guy who's making that amount of money, you ain't going to be able to get him for anybody who's cheap. I mean, the fact that both both teams, they had two players who were probably only two players that they could have traded for. Maybe Chris Paul with another guy, if you want to do just a swap for swap. But, you know, it was a situation was I'll take your bad contract and you can have my bad contract. And to take my bad contract, here's a first round pick and zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day. We'll see how this works. But um, I think for Houston, again, given the position that they were in, the fact that they gave up so much to get Chris Paul and the draft picks that they gave up to build that team that underachieved in terms of what their goals were, I think they did. I think they came out all right. I mean, yeah, John Wall, as I mentioned before, we don't know what kind of player we're going to be getting. We're not definitely not getting the, the player that uh, we once saw in his prime. But Houston did recoup one of the first-round picks that uh, they had to give up. In trading Robert Covington, they got another pick back. So they're starting to regain some of the picks that they've lost. So at least the, uh, the Raphael Stone, the GM for the uh, Rockets, is starting to rebuild that way. But for the team, I think, again, to move forward, I, I don't know how Harden and John Waller is going to work. And I don't know what the mindset is of James Harden going into camp. I haven't talked to James Harden. I wasn't hanging out in LA talking to James Harden about the whole deal. I don't know. I'm just like you, man, in terms of I hadn't had an opportunity to talk to uh, JH to find out what his uh, true thoughts and feelings are. So it'll be interesting to see this drama play out. So if James comes in with a negative attitude, I mean, I hope he doesn't go what Jimmy Butler did when he tried to get himself out of Minnesota. I don't think that uh, James has that personality, but you know, this is, again, Westbrook is the latest all-star who couldn't find long-term success playing with James Harden. And these guys were boys. These guys grew up in L.A. These guys were talking about, I know Russell's game, and Russell knows my game, and we hang out in the summer, and we work out in the summer, and we're boys, and we play AAU ball, and we play year for Oklahoma City, and reunited, and it feels so good, and everything's great. And then 365 days later, Russell Westbrook is like, get me the fuck out of here. And James Harden's like, yeah, get me the fuck out of here also, except don't send me to the same place where you're sending Russell Westbrook because I don't want to play for him. And Russell Westbrook said, yeah, the feelings, mutual. (laughs) So I don't know, man, marriage. We love each other, but we just can't stand to be around each other. Maybe it's a situation like that. Uh, Yeah. John Wall is a dominant point guard. Westbrook and Paul had their assist averages go down when they were playing with James Harden. Why? Because Harden takes the ball and he dribbles, 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 and he 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 dribbles, 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 and the fans yawned, and the announcers groaned, and the opponents say, come on, man, what the fuck? And James Harden is still out there with a shot clock going down from 16 to 12 to 8 to 4, and he's a dribble, 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 a dribble, 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 a dribble, a dribble, a dribble, 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 shot. It's like, or he did this a lot of times. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that Austin Rivers and Eric Gordon never just went over there and said, hey, motherfucker, next time you throw me the ball with two seconds on the shot clock and I'm standing 27 feet away from the basket with a guy on me, I'm just going to let that ball go out of bounds, and that will be just a turnover on you. You know, I have incentives in my contract also, and maybe I have an incentive saying that I have a certain percentage I need to shoot from the field for me to collect an extra 50 grand or 100 grand in my contract. 
And after dribbling the basketball for 17 seconds with the shot clock running down because you now have nowhere to go to pull up the shot, you're going to throw it to me with two seconds on the shot clock where I, where I can't even create a shot, where I can't even do anything. I just have to go ahead, catch it, and heave it at the rim because you don't want your shot percentage, you don't want your shooting percentage to go down. F-U-C-K-U. So, yeah. Take a look at it a little bit. What's Houston's projected lineup here? Wow. John Wall, James Harden, Christian Wood, who was a good acquisition uh, from Detroit, P.J. Tucker, Eric Gordon. How many of those guys are still going to be on the team when everything is all said and done? That's not a championship-winning team. Houston's talking about, I want to build a championship. I want to build a championship with that? Really? That's going to beat the Lakers? That's going to beat the Clippers? That's going to beat the Nuggets? That's going to beat the Jazz? That's going to be possibly an upcoming, I don't know, the Pelicans have a way to go, but just taking a look at the, you know, the, the, the teams in the Western Conference, Houston ain't going anywhere with that, with that squad. And didn't you hear James Harden talk about, I want to win? Didn't you see James Harden turn down a $103 million extension? This is the team that you're going to be building around with James Harden? That's going to have James Harden go, oh, well, shit. You know, I thought, I mean, you know, I was yearning to play with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving because I thought I had a chance to win the championship in an electric conference like the Eastern Conference. But, oh, hell, if you're going to surround me with Christian Wood, T.J. Tucker, and John Wall, a limited John Wall, well, then, hell. You know, let's start planning that parade in June in Houston. I mean, come on, man. What, for what? The, the parade in Houston, the only, the only parade that's going to be in Houston in June for the Rockets is parading these guys out of town after they either miss the playoffs or get bounced by uh, the Denver Nuggets or the uh, L.A. Clippers in the first round. And again, I, how much are we asking John Wall to play here? He's got to be on restricted minutes. He's not going to be playing back-to-backs. There's going to be a whole lot of game management when it comes to John Wall. So even that situation with James Harden, he's not going to have the James Hall, James Wall that we all know and remember. Is Wall going to be a guy that's just going to be, you know, on the second team and get that offense initiated that way so he can, you know, fit his skills and his strengths and what he knows? Because he won't be able to do that. If he's going to be on the floor the majority of the time with James Harden, the John Wall that we saw in Washington, that ain't gonna be that ain't gonna be happening in Houston with James Harden. It was similar to what Chris Bosch had to go through with LeBron James. It's similar to what Kevin Love had to go through with LeBron James. It's similar to what Ray Allen had to go through with Paul Pierce. Whenever you get these superstars and when they're coming over from another team, you're not bringing your game. John Wall ain't bringing his game over. And having Houston adjust to the way he plays. No, 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 no. John Wall is going to have to adjust to the way James Harden plays. And you can ask Russell Westbrook and Chris Paul. That is very difficult to do. And at the end of the day, it doesn't turn fruitful because the Rockets don't win a championship. Daryl Morey is gone. Mike D'Antoni is gone. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what this looks like. But, you know, I, I again... Because of the fact that Westbrook was going to be around for three years, you weren't going to trade Russell Westbrook for a lesser contract, less money, less years. So that that was just the bottom line. So 
You got a guy who didn't want to be there in the first place. You got him out of town. You saved yourself a million dollars, so you're getting a guy who's making one hundred thirty-two million dollars. No, I guess John Wall's making one thirty-three. I don't know. Whatever, man. What's what's a hundred? What's a million dollars between friends, right? So you have a situation like that. You bring in John Wall. All right. We'll see what he can do as far as working with James Harden. But the key thing is, the main thing is, is recouping those draft picks that the Rockets lost when they tried to uh, build a championship around James Harden. Now, are the Houston Rockets going to make the same mistake that the Washington Wizards did? Are the Houston Rockets going to continue to make the same mistake, even though they were sitting up there talking about, no, 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 we can win with James Harden, we can win with James Harden. Let me tell you something, man. The team that y'all have right now for the Houston Rockets, y'all ain't coming close to winning the championship this year, next year, or the year before. You better do what's right for the organization and really do what, what's right for James Harden. Make everybody happy, yourself and James Harden. Trade James, get some draft picks, get some capital, start over. LeBron, it's the, LeBron is 35 years old. The two to three year plan to get the Rockets in a position to where they can start making moves. Memphis is getting better. Utah just signed Donovan Mitchell, thinking about maybe getting them uh, getting a contract for Rudy Gobert, so Utah's going to remain strong. Jokic and Jamal Murray for Denver, they're 23 and 25 years old. The Clippers have Kawhi and Paul George, and even Playoff P is a better, on a, you know, the Clippers is better than what Houston has. Man, y'all better break this down now, Houston. And when the time comes for the 2023-24 season, that's when you'll start being players for teams of upward mobility to eventually start winning championships. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today here on a beautiful Friday afternoon out here in Las Vegas, Nevada, as I'm recording this in my townhome, which needs to have the kitchen needs, no, the kitchen is, the kitchen needs to be cleaned. Uh, yeah, gotta get to that, but, uh, yeah, up here watching a little bit, got my uh, TV set to the Food Network, watching some diners, drive-ins, and dives with my man Guy Fieri. So uh, I'm set. I'm ready to go. I'm rip-roaring, ready to go. The one place that I went to when uh, he did a show out here in Vegas or when he uh, was highlighting one of the uh, pizza places out here in Vegas, it was all right. (laughs) The pizza was all right, but uh, I would love to have the opportunity. I mean, you're talking about, uh, food paradise on the uh, disc- on the travel channel, and then uh, what Fieri is doing, going across the country, eating at all these places. Man, man, oh man, you talking about, I love doing podcasts, I love talking about sports, and I love yelling and screaming and ranting and raving about politics and some other things, man, but you talking about a dream come true in terms of a great job, and Guy Fieri is making money. 
if the fact that him to go around to these countries and go around to these places and try these foods, some of that shit that they eat, I wouldn't eat, but like 98% of the stuff that these guys are cooking is like, yeah, man, give me some of that, give me some of that. And I can sit there and talk about it. it's crunchy, it's delicious. The food blends well together. You get the bunch, you get the crunch, you get the bite, you get the sweetness, you get the tartness, you get the sweet and the sour and all that kind of stuff. I can bullshit my way through uh, some good, some good eatings like that. So my question is, you know, on Chopped and Beat Bobby Flay and all these other places where these guys bring out their food and they try them and they eat it and then they give their critique of it. What happens to the rest of the food? Because they be throwing in some really like some high end stuff, some high end food and all this kind of stuff and all of these ingredients and everything. So it's like these folks just take a, a nibble and a bite and a crunch and a, and a chow and a chew and they start uh, talking about this is good, this is bad, I like this, I didn't like that, and this, that, and the other. It's like, okay, judges, go ahead and switch your plates. So like, well, what are y'all going to do with the food that y'all didn't eat? Are y'all going to throw it away? We got people in this world, we got people in this country hungry. Y'all are just going to what? Give that to the uh, film crew? Y'all are just going to give that to somebody else? I mean, I would have like a, you know, a bunch of homeless folks maybe sitting outside the studios and be like, you know, when y'all are done with this, I'll go ahead, put this in a styrofoam cup or whatever, give it to the homeless and say bon appetit or something. I don't know. I mean, bring some children who are hungry or something like that and let them eat the stuff that uh, you guys don't eat. But, you know, they tasting these folks on Beat Bobby Flay. You have these judges. They take a couple of bites or whatever, and it's like, they give their critique, and it's like, okay, that's good enough. It's like, well, what the fuck are y'all going to do with the rest of the food? I mean, these folks are making four dishes and four plates and all this kind of stuff, so I don't know exactly what they do, but I hope they give it to somebody. I, I, I damn sure hope they ain't throwing it away, because number one, that shit is looking too damn good to be thrown away. You're talking about food being made by Jane Beard Award winners and Iron Chefs and all of these superstars of... uh of the cooking industry and stuff. You're going to throw that shit away? Are you fucking nuts? Let me know where y'all are throwing that away and I'll be right there in the garbage disposal or I'll be right near the trash can and say, now nah, give that shit to me. I'll eat it. I couldn't be a judge in any of them shows, man. I couldn't be a judge at Chop. I couldn't... Uh, guys' grocery games and the Hollywood bacon and then the, the, the holidays bacon and all that kind of stuff. I couldn't be a judge because they'd be asking what I think about the dish and I'd, I would still be eating. Um, 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 yes, yeah, shit tastes good to me. Mm, 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 that's good. I'm being a fry tag. Are you gonna, are you gonna finish eating yours? I'll take, I'll just take that. Mm, mm, yep, yep mm. I really can't give a uh, true description. I really can't tell you how good it is or how bad it is yet. I really need just another sample. Uh, Jeffrey Stakarian, you gonna finish yours? I guess not, right? I'll, I'll, I'll take that. I mean, I'd be eating that shit, man. Especially when you're talking about you got 45 minutes between each meal. The, you know, for them to cook the food and all that kind of stuff. Shit. You think I'm going to turn down anything that Bobby Flay makes? <laughs> I be sitting up there talking about beat Bobby Flay, talking about, yeah, you two who don't want to finish your meal? I'll take that. Thank you very much. Oh, in the winter, Bobby Flay. Eat rocks, chump. So there you go, man. That's my thoughts on the Food Channel. Hopefully they're doing something with that food that hasn't been eaten by the judges that they're sitting there going, hmm, as Alex Bornicelli is sitting there going, good deal, no deal. Manette Chaldron, who is just so, what a sexy, attractive woman she is, is sitting there giving her thoughts. Amanda Freitag and and uh, those guys, just, just fantastic. Love myself, the Food Channel. Mark Murphy and those guys. Love myself, the Food Channel. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us getting back to some sports and some football, college football playoff rankings. Uh, what is this, week number two? Oh, this <laughs> 
Nothing's changed. More things change. The more things stay the same, right? The top seven teams remain the same. Alabama, number one. Notre Dame, number two. Clemson, number three. Ohio State, number four. Those are the top four teams for the top four spots. Alabama beat Auburn in the Iron Bowl last weekend, 42-13. Quite sure them folks in Auburn, Alabama are sitting there talking about, how in the hell does Gus Malzahn, how in the hell does that man house still have a job? How in the hell did we give him a contract extension, dagnummit? 42-13, Matt Jones threw for five touchdown passes. Um, didn't even need head coach Nick Saban on the sidelines to do it. He tested positive for COVID-19 after showing some mild symptoms. He's still not back with the team. Well, he wasn't back with the team, but everything is copacetic, and he'll be on the um, sidelines when Alabama gets revenge in their game against LSU. I remember when LSU, I remember, I remember. I remember last season when LSU beat Alabama. And I said that, uh, you know, with Ed Orgeron as a coach, as a recruiter, and the the location that he's at, this could be the first time, this could be the real program, at least in the SEC. Clemson, I mean, you could debate whether, you know, which program is more elite as of right now, or which program has been stronger the last four or five years, Clemson and Alabama. Clearly, it's been those two and really nobody else. But I said, after all, uh, after LSU beat uh, Alabama, I said that, you know what, man? It ought to run. This this guy might be the thorn in Nick Saban's side. This guy might be ultimately the Rafa Nadal to Nick Saban's Roger Federer. You know what I'm saying? In terms of, you know, Federer seemed like he could beat everybody for a while except for uh, Nadal. Then Djokovic came on the scene and he got better and Roger got older. And now it's basically, you know, a situation where you have Novak and Rafa winning Grand Slams. And I thought, you know, Kirby Smart might have been that guy to give Nick Saban some troubles wrong in the SEC. And it was like, man, Ed Orgeron might be that guy. Because just the way he's talking, Ed Orgeron had that Cajun swag to him to be like, you know, I don't give a fuck about Nick Saban. Fuck Nick Saban. Yeah, I'm going to beat his ass. I'm going to beat him at home. I'm going to beat him at Alabama. And after the game's over, I'm going to be talking shit. And, you know, you're talking about football players, high school football players. They love that shit, man. Especially if you can go ahead and produce. And the recruiting ground that Louisiana is situated on in LSU, the uh, type of school that it is and the football program that it is. And Ed Orgeron as the uh, uh, head coach in the, in the recruiter that he is. I mean, this is a situation where, yeah, you know, LSU could be that team that ultimately... I'm not going to say he sends Nick Saban into retirement, but brings Alabama back to the pack in terms of they ain't winning championships every single year. Instead of the Auburn, instead of the Alabama Crimson Tide being in the playoffs every year, now it could be a situation where for the next five or six years in a row it could be LSU. Wrong! Boy, was I wrong on that one. I didn't know Joe Burrow was that good. I didn't know Joe Brady, the offensive coordinator, passing coordinator, whatever you wanted to call him for the LSU Tigers last year. I didn't know he was that important. And I didn't know the difference. I didn't know the discrepancy between head coach and recruiter. Because it seems to me like head coach, Ed Orgeron, average. Recruiter, Ed Orgeron, fantastic. So I thought that any mediocrity that Ed Orgeron had as a coach if he could put a good enough staff together and go out and get himself some really great recruits, continue to be 
a school that's going to be ranked in the top two or three every recruiting ranking that it really didn't matter how bad of a coach or how mediocre of a coach Ed Orgeron was. Just on talent alone, if he just didn't get in the way of the, of the coordinators, that he could go ahead and be successful. And with LSU, and the fact that they can pay uh, top-notch dollars to get themselves excellent uh, offensive and defensive and special team coordinators and defensive line coaches and wide receiver coaches and quarterback coaches and such that, you know, just as a guy who could just be the CEO, I mean, how bad could Ed Orgeron be in that position for LSU to fall off like they did? They're falling off. They're falling off. They're falling off. They are falling off. So it's like, I don't know how much longer... I mean, uh, you know, the guys who I really listen to and respect, the Pat Forties of the world and some others, I mean, they bring up the name Gene Chiswick of Auburn. I mean, yeah, you look good and you're a genius when you have Cam Newton that one year when you won the national championship and then a couple of years later, he's gone. And Auburn is um, Auburn is in the, the gutter in terms of their opportunities and their position to win championships and be an elite football program to challenge Alabama. And with Gus Malzahn, I mean, it's been a rocky, bumpy relationship between the fan base and the coach and that football program. Bo Nix. I'm sick and tired of hearing about Bo Nix. Bo Nix is going to be like uh, the, the Sam Ellinger for Texas. It's gonna, I feel like he's been around playing football for that program for like eight years. I'm tired of Bo Nix. I don't care about the fact that he grew up wanting to be an Auburn Tiger and all of this bullshit. I don't care. He ain't getting it done as a quarterback. This was supposed to be the guy that was supposed to be able to have Auburn compete with the Alabamas of the world. Hasn't happened. So, you know, that's a, that's another deal. That uh, That's another discussion I'll get into a little bit later on in podcast. But, you know, Alabama remains number one. They're going to blow out LSU. All that shit that uh, Ed Orgeron was talking about. You don't think Nick Saban and them boys, you think those guys didn't remember that? You don't think they remember that shit? Man, they're about to get, they're about to get bum-rushed. At LSU on Saturday. So maybe they just should have canceled that game. Maybe when the game was uh, canceled the first time, maybe they should have been like, nah, we're cool. We're good. We're fine. Don't worry about it. We don't need to play Alabama this year. We're good. Don't worry about it. We got enough donors to, uh, to uh, you know, take care of the losses. We're good. Ohio State still in the top four. <laughs> this team has only played four games. Now, they're supposed to play Michigan State. Ryan Day is not going to be at the game because he's tested co- uh, positive for COVID. But the Big Ten is doing everything humanly possible that they can do to have Ohio State get the sixth win so they can qualify for the uh, football playoffs. Cincinnati, again, I mean, you know, Cincinnati remains unbeaten, and they're ranked number seven, the same place where they were last week. You know, you know, you know that there ain't no way humanly possible that Cincinnati is going to be in the top four spots. No way. I don't give a damn what they do. They can go out and they can beat some teams 100 to nothing for the rest of the season. It ain't going to matter. Clemson, Notre Dame, one of those two teams are going to be in. Alabama, they're probably going to be in. And if complete, complete, utter chaos happens, I still don't think that Cincinnati can find an avenue, can find a way, can have directions to get themselves to be one of the top four teams to uh, compete for the college football playoffs. It's called, you're not in the Power 5 conference. Go fuck yourself. You ain't invited. We ain't interested. So, you know, Cinderella, you ain't going to the ball, bitch. So it's like one of those deals. So Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. College football week 13 this past weekend. 
18 games were postponed or canceled. Brings the total number of games canceled or postponed this season to 100. Got to make that money though, right? Hey, presidents, you got to make that money, right? ADs, you make that money, right? We got to make that money. Fuck it. I don't give a damn how we get there. We got those conferences, the Big 12, the Big 10, ACC, SEC, Pac-12. Damn, what, where in the hell is the Pac-12? What is going on with the Pac-12? I live close to Pac-12 country, and I keep forgetting that that conference is still playing football games, or at least trying to play football games. Jeez. So look at some games, postponed games, with some significance. Again, the Ohio State-Illinois game was canceled this past Saturday after a positive test with the Ohio State program. Again, we're speaking about a situation where Ohio State needs to, there's no more cancellations. There's no more postponements. I don't know exactly what we can do. I'm sorry, man, if I'm Gene Smith, the athletic director, I'm sitting up there speaking to somebody to say, okay, even if we do have positive tests, what exactly can we do to either A, hide the fact that we have positive tests and just put them on the field and cross our fingers or doing something, man, because we ain't missing out on that check. We ain't missing out on that opportunity to play for a championship. All the hugabaloo and all this other bullshit, us and Nebraska and all these folks from the Big Ten conferences, you know, we threw our weight around and was talking about we'll go play sometime else and somewhere else and all this other bullshit. And now we're at the position now where we might not have an opportunity to play when if we're Ohio State, we're one of the top four teams in the country this year. And we're going to have, we're going to miss out on an opportunity because of some fucking COVID positive tests. What exactly can we do to get around this? What can we do? Can we fudge? Can we cheat? Can we do something just in case? If I'm Ohio State, I have a plan B. Hey man, I'm sorry. You're putting children's, you know, you're putting minors, you know, their health at risk and young people and all that bullshit. Hey man, fuck all that bullshit. Look, the intentions of college football, the intentions of the conferences were to go ahead and see what we could do. The intentions of Ryan Day and the Ohio State football players were to play the season under any means necessary. And when the commissioner of the Big Ten decided that they were going to shut down the season, the fans, the parents, the players, the coaches, they were hit and hollering and yelling and whining and crying and doing all this kind of stuff. Fine, motherfuckers. You got yourself a goddamn season. We're going to finish this motherfucker hook or crook. Hook or crook. 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 Emphasis on the word crook. So, Ohio State, you wanted to, you wanted to play this season? Fine. You're going to fucking play this season. You're one of the best four teams in the league? League, fine. We're going to fucking find a way to get you to the uh, college football playoffs. And then we can 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now, when none of this shit is as significant as it is today, then we can start going into our conspiracy theories. And then we can start going into the bloody socks. And then we can start going into the uh, shooter at the grassy knoll. And then we can start doing all that other bullshit and conspiracies. And y'all can have documentaries and whodunits and all this other nonsense. As of right now, I don't give a damn how many players had COVID. If they're walking, if they're breathing, if they can play, they're fucking playing. So, hook by crook. And that's the attitude. That's, that's the attitude of college football, right? That's been, always been the attitude of college football. The only conference who actually gives a damn about their players are the Ivy League. 
Not only did the Ivy League cancel the football season, they also canceled the basketball season. Why? I don't know, because those schools actually give a damn about their quote-unquote student-athletes. The Big Ten doesn't, the ACC doesn't, the SEC doesn't, or they don't care enough. They care more about how much money they're going to be missing more than they care about the health and safety of their players. So fuck it. Go all the fucking way with this bullshit. So Florida State had their second consecutive game postponed on Saturday. There was a schedule to play Virginia. Virginia was like, nah, we're good. So now the ACC has now announced that, uh, you know, Notre Dame doesn't have to play Wake Forest and Clemson only has to play one more game. So instead of playing nine games or ten games or something like that, just to make sure that one or two teams from the ACC play in the college football semifinal and have that chance to win a championship, we're just going to strengthen the odds. So Wake Forest, sorry, you ain't playing the uh, scheduled game against Notre Dame. We're just going to postpone that game. So basically, Notre Dame has already secured a spot in the college football playoffs. Oh, and by the way, Notre Dame ain't even part of the ACC conference. They just needed somewhere to go. So the ACC has Notre Dame on loan for a year. And they're bending over backwards and putting it in with no Vaseline or with some Vaseline just for those guys? All about the money. All about the money. And same thing with Clemson. You know, Dabo Sweeney up there talking about, look, I, I can understand why Dabo got a little angry when, you know, that school, Clemson travel all the way down. Let's travel all the way down. We're talking about from Clemson, South Carolina to Tallahassee, Tallahassee Florida. Exactly not going from uh, New York to Honolulu. But, you know, you had to bring the team. You brought the band. You brought the cheerleaders. The, you know, the money was involved in that trip. So you get down there and Florida State's like, ah, yeah, sorry, we've got some uh, COVID issues, so we're not going to play. Or, oh, I heard that you guys have some COVID issues, so we're uh, postponing the game. And Dabo was like, man, fuck that bullshit. You want to postpone this game? Okay, fuck you. No, we ain't rescheduling shit unless you re- you uh, bring us back the money or give us back the money we spent to come on down here. You're going to tell us that shit the day of when we get down there? Fuck you. So in one essence, in one respect, I can see where Dabo Sweeney is coming from. On the other hand, Dabo, you're a football coach. You're not a doctor. You're not a commissioner. You're not a president. You're a fucking football coach. We don't do as you say. You do as I say. Now, your team is going to go back down there, and you're going to play Florida State. Now, you can fucking go down there with the team, or you won't. And if you don't go down there with the team, and if you continue to have a stink, and if you continue to speak publicly, and you continue to bury us publicly, I will fucking bury your fucking ass. Are we understood? We play ball here, Dabo. Because this conference is bending over backwards to make sure that you have the best chance to get yourselves into the college football playoff. Oh yeah, and that big fat contract that you signed? I'm quite sure it has a bonus for you making the college football playoffs and also winning the college football playoff. So do me a fucking favor, will you? Help me help you. Shut the fuck up and stop burying our other uh, brethren in the ACC, Florida State or whatever. Just shut the fuck up and let us do what we need to do. Are we okay with that? Doesn't matter. We're okay with that. Get the fuck out of my office or get the fuck off my Zoom call or hang up the phone, whatever. But uh, that's what it should have been because Dabo's up there now, up there dictating when we're going to play and who we're going to play and all of this kind of bullshit. Uh, uh, don't know about that one. That's pretty interesting. But again, you know, the ACT has declared that 
uh, you know, the football is going to be, we're going to be changing some games and we're going to do everything that we can to have Clemson play Notre Dame in the ACC championship game. With their fingers being crossed at Clemson, now with Trevor Lawrence at the quarterback and not uh, DJ Ugla Ugla Ugla. Last name I forgot, I apologize. But um, he's going to now be at the quarterback position and that will allow Clemson and some other other players on Clemson's defense, they're going to be eligible and they'll be able to play in this game. So that will be the difference. So the ACC on Tuesday declared a series of college schedule changes that guarantees Notre Dame will play in the conference title game on December 19th. Now what the league said in the statement, it said here that the league's athletic directors voted to preserve the integrity of the conference championship game amid the COVID-19 pandemic by evaluating the league's top three teams based on a nine-game conference schedule as opposed to a 10-game schedule. So those teams are Notre Dame, Clemson, and Miami. So based on the current standings and results to date, Notre Dame holds all tiebreakers and therefore secured a berth in the ACC football championship game. Wow, how about that, man? The amended schedule concludes the regular season on Saturday, which means that Notre Dame, Syracuse, and the Clemson, Virginia Tech, those games will be played. The Irish and the Tigers were previously scheduled to play Wake Forest and Florida State on December 12th, respectively. But then again, Dabo threw that little fit and that little hissy fit and was talking about. I, I like the way that Dabo, when he was calling out Florida State, he didn't call out the players, he didn't call out the coach, he called out the administration. Like the coaches wanted to play, the players wanted to play. So what he was saying was, you know, just for a copacetic points, I'm not yelling at the coach and I'm not yelling at the teams. I'm not calling you guys cowards. I'm calling your administration cowards. So it was nice to see D- Dabo kind of throw that little bit in there also. So Miami's going to, uh, Miami's going to travel to play Duke on Saturday and then they'll host North Carolina on December 12th. So again, if Clemson beats North Car- uh, Virginia Tech and right now they're 22 points favorites, They'll secure the second spot in the title game due to the head-to-head tiebreaker they have over over Miami, in which they won on October 10th, 42-17. So what happens if Clemson loses to Virginia Tech? Good question. That means Miami then must beat both, uh, beat both Duke and North Carolina the following week to secure a berth in the title game. And if Miami fails to do that... Uh, before that, then it'll host Virginia uh, Georgia Tech on... December 19th. If Notre Dame, Clemson, or Miami can't play on Saturday due to the coronavirus coming up, those games can be rescheduled for December 12th. So, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's just... I don't know, man. This has just been a weird year. I don't know whether I'm just like, just hurry up and get this college football season over with, or I don't know what my emotions are. Because it's like... You... Start the season again. It, everything was just thrown just out of whack. And look, no fault of college football and everything else. There's a fucking pandemic going on. So Labor Day and everything, the tradition which I've been so accustomed to for decades is like thrown out of whack. So you don't have those Labor Day games. You don't have those uh, top five teams or top ten teams playing each other. You don't have Alabama going up against USC. You don't have that stuff going on in September. There was a situation where should the Big Ten play? Should the Big Ten not play? And you had that rigmarole. Then you had the Pac-12 talking about we're going to cancel. Oh, no, we're not going to cancel the season. And 
I don't know. And now I don't, you have the MAC, and you have the Mountain West, and you have all these all these small mid-major conferences. So the possibilities of you know a huge upset that's happening in September, you know those situations are gone. That's one of the things that make college football so interesting is those early season contests in September where you have uh, mid-major, you know, putting a whooping or beating a, a top 20 team or a team in a power five conference and such like those, such like that. I mean, that wasn't as prevalent and that wasn't as impactful as it was this season. And when everything is all said and done, I mean, maybe with the exception of Notre Dame, I mean, Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State. I mean, basically, that's what the season was for, mainly. To get those three in, everybody knew that those were the three best teams in college football. Everybody knew the way the schedule was going to be put together, that those guys were going to, uh, that Clemson was going to do what they needed to do. Even with the hiccup at Notre Dame, those guys were still going to be in a position to uh, make it to the college football playoffs. Everybody knew that maybe with, I don't know, I mean, shit, who knows, Texas A&M maybe could have shocked the world, but Johnny Manziel wasn't walking through that door. So it was like Alabama, for the most part, the schedule that they had, you knew they weren't going to lose any football games. Um, it was just a matter of who was going to be that next team. Was it going to be Florida? Was it going to be Notre Dame? Was it going to be Georgia? Which one of these guys was at the time? At the time, was it going to be Michigan? Or was it going to be Penn State when the Big Ten decided that they were going to uh, start this the season. So all of these things, it just seemed, I don't know, man, it just seemed like sort of kind of bullshitish, And it just brings to light, brings more evidence. And look, anybody with a brain in their head and anybody who can, um, you know, put, you know, know what one plus one equals two means knew that, look, this is all about money. This is all about, and, and I've said it myself, how much money does Austin, Texas lose when, the University of Texas doesn't play. How much does Columbus, Ohio lose financially when Ohio State doesn't play its football games? How much money do college towns like Auburn, Alabama and College Station, Texas and Norman, Oklahoma and Stillwater and uh, Oxford, Mississippi and all of these places, how much money does the, how much does uh, Omaha, Nebraska or yeah, in, in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, excuse me, Lincoln, Nebraska, where Nebraska plays. How much does the economy take a hit when college football is not in session? Be damned the fact that they're, we're in a pandemic. Be damned the fact that when you're going to be playing college football, that the numbers were going to rise just because of the changing climates and flu season and everything like that. We had a fucking idiot in the White House who really didn't give a fuck about how many people got uh, sick or died. He only gave a damn about his fucking punk ass self. So we, we knew this shit was coming. And I guess you could say that the only thing that we could go phew was about was that no one died. Thank goodness that no one got deathly ill. That no one was knocking on the doorstep of the Grim Reaper this season. That no college football player faced that adversity. So in that case... You can almost say that this college football season, if they can continue to do what they're doing, have the playoffs, get themselves a championship, that it was a success. And you can go ahead and you can, those conferences who make it to the playoffs, you go ahead and you can cash those checks. It's all about the, all about, uh, the money. All about how much, all about that $549 million that's going to be doled out. That's how much, according to the NCAA documents obtained by uh, USA Today Sports back in around 2018, 2017, the Rose Bowl, Sugar Bowl, Orange Bowl, 
Fiesta Bowl, Peach Bowl, Cotton Bowl, plus the national championship game, they pay out a combined $549 million to conferences and schools. That was the school year of 2018-19. And you also have to remember the teams who play in those games in the conferences, they divvy up about four hundred and forty about four hundred and forty eight million dollars because ninety nine million dollars of that five hundred and forty nine dollars forty nine million dollars ninety nine million dollars of that goes to the lower tier schools. So when schools are playing in front of happy empty stadiums normally and the toilet bowl and the who cares bowl and the spinal title sponsorship bowl and no one's gonna watch bowl and we're only doing this because gamblers wanted to bet on something bowl and the Bahamas bowl and the Hawaii bowl and the Shreveport bowl and all these other bullshit bowls. The that's where that money comes from to help those Bowl games, the Pinstripe Bowl and the California Bowl and the Sponsorship Sponsorship Bowl. That money, the $549 million, $99 million of that goes to all those other bullshit bowls. So those conferences that make the college football playoffs, they get the lion's share of that dough, baby. So, boom. And under the BCS system, the combined payout, of those six games, plus the BCS championship, when you're speaking again about the major bowl games, the six bowl games that people actually care about, plus the BCS championship game, that was $227 million. And during this last year of existence in the 2013-14 season. And that was mostly due to ESPN, which was paying about $7.3 billion combined to televise those six bowl games, plus the championship during that 12-year period. So that was another... That was another um, that was another revenue stream that uh, that's coming into these days. So you know that's what college football is all about. So been weird, been uneven, been awkward. Still interested, but there's always still a reminder that college football, student athletes, all that shit that they're talking about, it's nothing but bullshit. I'm a Wendell Wallace. Wait a minute. Am that the wrong language or what? What what language am I speaking here? Come on, tell it vous. That's French. Uh, que pasa? Ah, ha, ha. See? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Getting on down. Getting on down. Bombados. Let's go. Let's do this. Speaking about what's going down in the world of sports, I told you, man. 
Man, when you get a good day, like I said, I, I'm not a, I'm not a parent, so you know I'm not around kids, I'm not around anybody because of this pandemic. But uh, I miss going into the classroom. I miss hanging out with the kids, man. I miss uh, learning. I miss learning. You can learn a lot from kids. I mentioned before, I told kids before. Look, I don't have kids, so you know anything in terms of your generation and everything. I'm learning from y'all. So if I'm walking around the classroom, I'm eavesdropping. If I'm in earshot of what y'all are talking about, what's going on with y'all lives or whatever, in terms of anything that I can um, compute and take into account when I'm listening to young people, I'm trying. I'm trying my best. So I miss the uh, I miss eavesdropping. I miss being nosy. I miss you know getting into the conversations, and I miss the teachers' aides because I always tell the teachers' aides, I'm like, look, you have two options here. Unless the teacher gives them something to do and I have to relay it to them. I say, look, you've got two options here. Either you're going to, I can write you a pass, you can go to the library, or it looks like y'all ain't doing anything. If I have like a senior class, if I'm substituting senior physics or something that's like, you know, these kids are awesome or depending upon what school I am, I'm not, I'm at during that day. If the kids are awesome, it's like, look, you know what? You have two options. You can, you know, go over there, and if you know anybody here, hang out with them, talk, chitty chat, and, you know, talk about what's going on in your life. Or you can go to another class and do some other work, or you can go to the cafeteria and hang out with your friends, or you can do whatever, because, you know, Miss Johnson, Miss Smith, Miss Jones didn't leave you anything for uh, you to do today. But uh, I'm telling you one thing, if you're going to stay here, you're going to talk to me. And if you're going to talk to me, I'm going to be asking you questions. I'm going to try to get, uh, you know, a little insight on what's going down. What's, you know, if you're a senior, are you going to be going to college? What colleges are you looking at? What's going to be your major? What do you want to do when you grow up? This, that, and the other. So that's what I'm going to be doing. Now, my advice is to lie and say, I've got to go somewhere or I'm going to do something because I'm going to talk your ear off because we got another 78 minutes to go. We got another 51 minutes to go. And I can ramble and I can talk. So my suggestion would be for you, I can write you a pass. You can go to the lunchroom, hang out with your buddies or go to another room or you can do anything you can to get away from me. That would be my suggestion. But I'm warning you, if you stay here and if you're going to be sitting right here, we're going to have a conversation because I want to get knowledgeable. I want to get educated in terms of what the younger folks are doing. Capiche? And sometimes they're like, yeah, give me a pass. Get the fuck out of here. Or they're like, yeah, it's cool. What do you want to know? So... So I miss one of the things I miss about not being in the classroom and uh, dealing and learning from the younger generation. After all, the motherfuckers are going to be taking care of me and you and everybody else, everybody from my generation when we get older. And uh, yeah, so I want to find out what makes them tick. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Ah, man, um, (laughs) did you see history being made in college football on Saturday? This past Saturday, Vanderbilt kicker Sarah Fuller, uh, when she kicked off for the Vanderbilt Commodores in the second half of their game against Missouri, she became the first woman to play in a Power 5 football game. Is kicking off really playing? I mean, I know it's playing in a college football game, but she kicked off. Was that really, is that really playing? I'm just, I'm, I'm not criticizing. I'm asking. I'm asking, that's all. So how did the opportunity come about? The fact that, because many people are saying this is a publicity stunt and everything. I don't think it was that. I think it was the case where Vanderbilt had a grad kicker opt out because the team stinks. Uh, they had other kickers opt out because of the COVID-19 testing. So they had to go into quarantine and they didn't have any kickers. I mean, this wasn't a situation where everybody was rip-roaring, ready to go from the 
kicking standpoint. And now ex-coach Derek Mason said, ah, you know what, fellas? We really don't need you this week. We're going to bring in Sarah Feller because I need to save my job. We're 0-7. We're putrid. We stink. And even at Vanderbilt, even at a school like Vanderbilt, I need to show something. So I need to, I don't know if it's a distraction, feel-good story, whatever. But I need something to save my job. So you guys, bombinos, and we're going to bring in Sarah Fuller for the publicity. Don't don't think it was that at all. I think it was a situation which was they needed kickers. They had tryouts. She happened to be the best one. She just happened to be a female. Nothing wrong with that. Fine, absolutely not wrong, uh, nothing wrong with that. So in doing so, again, she became the uh, first player, first, first woman to play in a Power 5 conference of a, a football game. Uh, Fuller is normally a goalkeeper for the Vanderbilt's SEC championship soccer team when she tried out. So let me see. Jacqueline, Jacksonville State's Ashley um, Martin in 2001 became the first woman to score a Division One college football, to score in a college uh, football game when she made three extra points. And then New Mexico State's Katie uh, Nida, H-N-I-D-A, I hope the H is silent, in 2003 became the first woman to score at the FBS level. So, I mean, she's, I mean, again, Katie Fuller, um, first person, first female to play in a Power 5 conference game, but there were others before her in terms of females playing in a football game. And, as I mentioned before, Ashley Martin of Jacksonville State becoming the first woman, and I guess you could say, what, still the first woman to score in a Division One college football game when she made three extra points. So, Miss Fuller was named the special teams, SEC special teams player of the week on Monday. I'm not going to be Jason Whitlock on this because I do think this is a great situation. I do think it's a great deal. I don't think it was a publicity stunt. I think it was great. She tried out. She was the best one. I wasn't privy to any of the uh, workouts. I didn't know who else she was competing against. So if the coaches said that she was the best qualified, most qualified, well, then she should. I don't give a damn what she is, female, male. I don't give a fuck. If she's the best person for the job, then she should get that opportunity. Then she should be able to do that. So I, I don't I don't have an opportunity. And yes, moving forward, you know, we're always trying to move forward in a positive direction for everybody, male, female, black, white, whatever. So, uh, yes, I, I understand the importance. And now women are... Something they're talking about, ooh, we, now I want to be a kicker. Now I feel that I can do things that maybe I wouldn't be able to do or wouldn't be able to attempt or wouldn't be able to try or would have been talked out of because now of what she did. And so I understand the significance. I understand the importance. And I have no problem with her doing that. I have no problem with her going to Georgia with the team and kicking. If she's the best one that can do it, then let her keep on doing it. I don't give a damn about the, the female, the gender thing never entered my mind. Is she the best person? Is he the best person? Whoever's the best person to do it, that's all I care about. That's all I care about. So kudos to her. My my deal is, um, it's like, A, okay, where do we go from here? Because I, I don't think there's going to be a, a whole bum rush of females who are looking to try out for um, field goal kickers for men's football teams or the NFL or anything like that. And I don't I don't know. I, it's, it's a situation because of that. It's a nice story and it's a wonderful story, but let's not have that take attention away from female sports who need more attention. 
You know what I'm saying? I mean, let's have the opportunity of of uh, uh, Fuller being able to uh, kick in this in this game. Sarah Fuller being able to kick in this game. Let's that now have that transfer over to what's going down with the women's soccer team. You know what I'm saying? Because that's where I think I'm not really interested in because it's not going to happen. You're you're not going to have women playing quarterback. You're not going to have women playing offensive tackle. You're not going to have women playing linebacker. And I, I, so my point is this. It's a wonderful moment and it's a great moment, but let's use that moment. Let's use that momentum. Let's use that, um, that, that impact. Let's use that significance to now place it over to sports such as women's sports. So women's sports can now get more attention or a, more attention than they deserve. That's, that's the only thing that I'm talking about. Because look, the kick that she had, it was, it was fugly. Gender, take gender out of it. All right. Because the Me Too movement and everything, that's what y'all are talking about. Look, don't be talking about, oh, she kicks good for a girl or she does well for a girl or she knows this. Wow, that's impressive due to the fact that she's a girl. If we're going to be going now on taking gender out, don't judge me on a curve in terms of, yeah, you know what? She did well for a girl. Take that out of the equation. Take a look at the kick. You know, analyze the kick. It was a low squib kick. Now, you could say it was designed by the coaches to limit the possibility of a return, but it traveled only 30 yards and was down at the 35-yard line. So in a game which Missouri was whooping on Vanderbilt something fierce and ultimately won the game 41 to nothing, which it didn't cost Derrick Mason his, his job, but he was fired right after the game, it was, uh, it was pretty lame. The kick itself was pretty lame, if we, could, if we, if we really want to be honest about it. And look, Vanderbilt's currently 0-8 this season. No one's giving a damn. Vanderbilt hasn't been heard from, seen from, cared about for a couple of years since when they started off. I think they started off 3-0 a couple of years ago, and they played Alabama the next week. And before the game, they were chirping and talking some nonsense like, Alabama better, better be ready. And Alabama beat them like 214 to nothing, some shit like that. But other than that, I mean, Vanderbilt is a nothing program as far as football is concerned. It's consciousness, it's relevance in the entire football, college football landscape. So, hey, you know what? If this female proved that she's the best person for the job, then cool. My only problem is if that's the best person for the job, how bad are the kickers outside of the ones that are already on the team not being able to play because of COVID issues? How many? How bad is the kicking talent on the campus of Vanderbilt University to where she got the job? If that's going to be, if that, if that kickoff was the best thing that came out of there in terms of uh, she was the best one, what were the others like? How bad were the other kickers who tried out for the team? I mean, how bad were their kicks? So again, she expected to continue as Vanderbilt's place kicker on Saturday against Georgia. Vanderbilt interim coach Todd Fitch told reporters on Tuesday that Fuller is practicing with the team and will be on the travel roster. And um, we have to be, we have to be careful. We have to be careful. This is a 15 minutes of fame's type of story. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Again, I'm glad that she had the opportunity. Cool. If she was the best one to do it, then by means I have no problems at all with her being the kicker. 
if she was the best person for the job. But come on, man, let's kind of like start calming down on the social significance of this, okay? I mean, she's still a female, and there's still going to be some boundaries because she's a female that males cannot cannot go over, touch, or whatever. Did you hear about this bullshit about she blasted her uh, new teammates at halftime with a halftime speech? What she she told uh, ESPN Courtney Cronin when asked, did you really go in at halftime and, and lambaste verbally lambaste the football team? She was like, I just went in there and I said exactly what I was thinking. I was like, we need to be cheering each other on. This is how you win games. This is how you get better by calling each other out for stuff and I'm going to call you out. I'm going to call you guys out. We need to be supporting one another. And then she also added, she was a little pissed off at how quiet everybody was on the sideline. We made a first down and I was the only one cheering and I was like, what the heck? What's going on? And I tried to get them pumped up. <laughs> okay. All right. This had nothing to do with their gender. Okay. This has nothing to do with their gender. But just pretend. Just pretend. No, let's not pretend. Let's go real world on this. If a male kicker who had just joined the team had never played the sport before from the men's, let's say the goalkeeper from the men's soccer team at Vanderbilt had won the job and then he came into the locker room and started lambasting and started calling out teammates at halftime. What do you think the male football players at Vanderbilt would have said and done to this guy. What they probably would have said, number one, who the fuck are you? Number two, shut the fuck up. Number three, if you don't shut the fuck up, I am going to blast, I am going to, I am going to shatter your jaw, shut the fuck up, and and we will take turns, each one of our teammates will take turns, first telling you to shut the fuck up, know your place, you're a fucking kicker. You're not even on this fucking team. And you're coming in here and you're going to be calling us out? Fuck you fellas. Get him. There ain't no fucking way a male kicker who had just joined a team, who had never played football before, wasn't even on the team, would have the nerve, a kicker of all people, a kicker, to come into the locker room, first game, hadn't even played the full game, hasn't even done anything, to go in there and start calling out guys? Shit. But because she's a woman, you, you know, you know, ain't nobody going to be, you know, what, what guy is going to say the things that needed to be said from this woman walking in here and talking about, you know, we need to do this and we need to do this and I can't believe this and you guys don't know how to win and let me show you guys how to win and all this kind of, fuck you. Who the fuck are you? You're a goddamn, you're a goddamn soccer player for God's fucking sakes. You're going to be fucking coming in here and, bitch, shut, shut the fuck up and sit the fuck down. That's what should have been said. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. And again, it had nothing to do with her gender. It's just the nerve, the uh, lack of awareness, the ignorance, I guess, from the positional standpoint. In football, kickers, when was the last time you heard a kicker up there talking smack? When was the last time in football at any level that a kicker was coming in there beating his chest and up there talking, you know, raises his voice and doing some type of shit like that. That shit don't happen in fucking football because you're a fucking kicker. Unless you're a dual threat guy, unless you are a kicker and a quarterback, 
kicker and a defensive lineman, kicker and, oh, I don't know, a real football fucking player. Ain't no football player who's a kicker only is going to be walking in there talking shit. But because she's a female, which one is going to be able to, uh, you know, address her like she needs to, needed to be addressed in terms of know your role and shut your mouth, like The Rock said. Know your role and shut your mouth before I take you down to uh, Know Your Role Boulevard and Jabroni Drive. What's even funnier, Fuller was talking about, after the speech, she said she had coaches come up to me and say, I've been wanting to say that for a while now. Those motherfucking coaches should be fired. You're coaches and you've been wanting to say that? Either you've been muzzled by the head coach to say, you know what, guys, just let it be. Don't go in there. Or you guys are too cowardly, too spineless, too gutless to go ahead and say something like that. So you had to put it on a place kicker. Don't give a fuck about what gender she is. But you're up there talking about, whoa, we had to have a place kicker say something that I've been dying to say but didn't have the guts, didn't have the balls, didn't have the permission, didn't have the spine to go ahead and do it. Yikes. No wonder you motherfuckers are 0-8. No wonder you guys haven't won a game. No wonder you guys are an embarrassment to SEC football. Jeez, man. Then someone compared what she did with Jackie Robinson in terms of breaking the color barrier in baseball. Oh, my goodness gracious. Stop, 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 stop. Please stop, stop, stop. Stop, stop. Please stop. Please stop. Please stop. Don't go. Stop. She kicked off. She didn't make a tackle. She didn't catch a pass. She didn't throw a pass. Pass. She didn't block anybody. She made one play. She wasn't in there for 60 snaps, 50 snaps, 20 snaps, 10 snaps. She kicked the ball off once, and it was fugly. And it put the defense in a horrible position. Stop. Stop with the... Again, I am happy. I am glad. If this can be a movement to where women in sports can better themselves, get more money, get more exposure, help out younger generations of females and do all those type of things. Hey, man, more power to her. Good, 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 good. Great, great, great. Fabulous moment, powerful moment, wonderful moment, historical moment, whatever. But let's just keep this shit in perspective and let's keep the focus on where it should be. Not the fact that, ooh, we, good golly, Miss Molly, that we have a female who's now going to be able to play a man's sport even if it's going to be just for one play for a couple of more games because of a pandemic situation. Let's let's use this now to focus on putting some spotlight, putting some attention on the women's sports. I'm not interested in a woman infiltrating and playing a man's sport. I'm interested in the uplifting and the availability that women will have to say, why the fuck do I want to play with men? I can go ahead and play with women. Ain't, ain't no fucking big deal about playing with a man, playing a man's sport. Why the fuck do I want to do that? I have a, I have the opportunity to play in the WNBA. I have the opportunity to play in a pro women's soccer league. I have the opportunity to play in a pro softball league. I have the opportunity to play female tennis where I can, you know, female tennis and female golf, which it's just as uh, financially uh, possible and prudent and fantastic than the men. So I don't need to go to the men to go ahead and do that. I can do just as well, be just as happy, and be just as impact, impactful, not just for women, but for people all over playing my female sport. Hopefully, that is the lesson. That is the direction that they'll go.
I hope. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Come on, you guys, I can't believe this. No one of you guys are losers. You know, when I played, being being the goaltender for the SEC Champions women's soccer team, you guys need to be this. You guys need to do that. You guys need to do Bitch, shut the fuck up and sit down. <laughs> Could you imagine me walking on a field with a women's soccer game at halftime, me walking into the locker room? You women need to do this. You women need to do that. How dare you guys, guys, you guys can't do this. You guys can't do that. I would not... I would not be offended at all if those women looked at me and said, man, shut the fuck up and get out of our locker room. You motherfucker just came here 15 minutes ago and now he's trying to tell us how to play soccer. Get the fuck out of here, man. You know, shit. So it's, again, the Sarah Fuller situation. It's interesting. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Turning now to the uh, NFL some games of interest this weekend for me. Cleveland at Tennessee. Both teams coming to the game with 8-3 and three records. On one hand, Tennessee's like, yeah, 8-3. and three. Good wins against Indy and the overtime victory against Baltimore. On the other side, you got Cleveland with this 8-3. And, and it's like, eh, yeah, I know, yeah, whatever. So it makes me say that Cleveland has a lot more to prove in this game. It's an 8-3 team, but does anyone feel like this is a really a true 8-3 team? This team, Cleveland, we're speaking about a strong possibility of making the playoffs for the first time in 18 years, man. One of the most sad sack, dysfunctional, embarrassing organizations for the last 18, 20, 25 years. Jimmy Haslam, the owner, firing coaches after every 15 games, it feels like, man. You guys now are in a position to... And the longest drought by any team currently in the NFL in terms of not making the playoffs. Playoffs, Cleveland should be jumping for joy, man. That should be one of the major headlines as far as sports is concerned right now. Eight and three. Woo! But devil is in the detail. And according to ESPN Football Power Index or the FPI, uh, Cleveland has the third easiest schedule in the league to date. So... The Browns have no wins against anyone ranked in the FPI top 10. They only have one victory. That's Indianapolis 34-23 of anyone in the FPI top 15. And they have two wins. The Houston Texans, who they beat 10-7 in a game that was weather, you know, weather played a role. And Indianapolis, those are the only two wins they've had against opponents, opponents ranked in the top 20. And then when you take a look at the three losses that they've had, Baltimore, Oakland, and Pittsburgh, and they've lost those games by a combined score of 92 to 19. And then you think about the fact that they play close games against Cincinnati and Jacksonville and Philadelphia and Dallas, those bad teams. You sit there and you say, eh, <laughs> yeah, eight and three. But I mean, you know, are they going to beat the Steelers? Are they going to beat the Chiefs? Are they going to beat these teams that, you know, I mean, it's great that we're making the playoffs. And, you know, I don't give a fuck if you guys were playing like, you know, if the, if the Cleveland Browns were playing, you know, 
Central High School or some shit like that. I don't, Mueller High School. I don't give a damn. You guys should still be excited the fact that you guys are going to be making the playoffs and the fact that you guys might have the best running back tandem in the league. And by far, you might have the best running back in the game. I know you've got, uh, I know there's Alvin Kamara you could make an argument for and Derrick Henry you can definitely make an argument for and uh, uh, Delvin Cook in Minnesota you can make an argument for. But man, you're going to try to tell me Nick Chubb, man. Nick Chubb is a baller. Nick Chubb arguably is the best running back in the game. You're talking about a guy who was a pro bowler last season who ran for almost 1,500 yards. Well, he's rushed for, for about 720 yards so far this season and six touchdowns, and he's missed four games with an injury. And that is your offense. Him and Kareem Hunt, who's, um, you know, rehabilitated his career very nicely after the situation in Kansas City, which that off-the-field incident which caused Kansas City to say goodbye to him. He's rushed for 706 yards. He's scored four touchdowns rushing, and he's leading the team with four touchdown receptions. And you guys are doing this without your most talented offensive football player, physically gifted offensive football player in uh, Odell, Odell Beckham Jr. So, hey, you, you know what? Excellent um, formula right here. Now, the key is going to be when you're going to have to put points on the board. Because if you're going to be playing Kansas City, if you're going to be playing Pittsburgh, that ball control might be nice. But are you guys going to be able to outscore a Patrick Mahomes? Are you going to be able to have an offense that's going to have to put up at least 28 points against Patrick Mahomes? Are you going to be able to control the clock and control the ball against a defense like Pittsburgh? I mean, when you're speaking about a team like Baltimore, I mean, this is a huge game for Tennessee because you have to put a win in the column in terms of, hey, man, we can play against some teams when we make the playoffs. And not a situation of if the Cleveland Browns make the playoffs. It's a position this season of when. So when you get to these games, I mean, we're not going to have the ability to fight, scratch, and claw and beat the Cincinnati's and the Jacksonville's of the world. Do we really have what it takes and this will be a good answer in the uh, game against Tennessee, especially a game on the road. Tennessee, on the other hand, they've won three out of four since losing consecutive games to Pittsburgh in a, wow, really, game to Cincinnati. But, you know, Sunday they beat up on the uh, Colts, even though they weren't, uh, the Colts were playing with a couple of uh, defensive uh, linemen that were absent because of COVID, the, uh, the Buckner Force being one of them, um, along with the game against the Ravens in which they won. Now, all of a sudden, two weeks ago, the Tennessee Titans, who were out in the playoff situation, now, fast forward two weeks now, they're the number three seed in the AFC playoff standings with five regular season games left. Derrick Henry being a beast. I mentioned before about how good Nick Chubb is. The versatility of Chubb. Many people who really know the game of football say that's one of the main reasons why they would go with Nick Chubb over Derrick Henry in terms of who's the best running back or who's the better running back of the two, but Derrick Henry is the beast. Now, yeah, Nick Chubb can beat you catching the football and breakaway speed and all those things, and he can hit the line a little bit faster and all those type of things, but Derrick Henry just wears you down. And again, he ran for 178 yards, three touchdowns and 28 carries against Indianapolis. The week before that against Baltimore, he ran for 133 yards, including the game-winning touchdown in overtime and on 28 carries against Baltimore. Yeah, you know what? In, in the first quarter, because of his style, 
of running and, you know, just him as a running back. Yeah, Nick Chubb can uh, go ahead and do some things, catch the ball out of the backfield, do some things. Meanwhile, you know, Derrick Henry, he had to get started. That big boy had to get going and going. So he's not, Nick Chubb might be able to break your back after carry number three, carry number four, or, you know, catching the ball out of the backfield and making something happen on the fifth or sixth play of the game to uh, put Cleveland in an advantageous position because of that many people are saying that's the reason why they would go with Nick Chubb being the better running back than Derrick Henry. But shit, man, I mean, just throughout the totality of the game, when you have to continue to hit Derrick Henry and you're an undersized safety or you're a cornerback or something like that, and you're going up against that big, strong offensive line as far as the defensive line is concerned and linebackers and such, and you're going to have to be dealing with Derrick Henry after the 5th carry, the 10th carry, the 15th carry, the 18th carry, the 22nd carry. And you've been, as far as the secondary is concerned with the other team, you've been having to deal with the big bodies that are at wide receiver in the tight end position. So everywhere you look at a skill position from the Tennessee Titans standpoint, you're dealing with big, physical, strong players that when you bring them down to the ground, when you tackle them, it's going to hurt. You're going to feel it. It might not happen the first time. It might not happen on snap 16. It might not happen in the second quarter. It might not happen on snap number 46. But at the game where it's on and on and on and you have to deal with that brutality, the team that both resembles the Stanford Cardinal under, under David Shaw, when those guys were rolling in terms of just the physicality of that team from an offensive standpoint, it wears down on you. And because of that, you have the main wearer down, which is Derrick Henry. By the fourth quarter, man, after being in a game like this, those motherfuckers don't want to touch that guy. Those guys don't want to tackle that guy anymore. I mean, there's a uh, don't want to when that time period comes. And that's the time when Derrick Henry starts motoring. That's the time when Derrick Henry starts moving and grooving. So it's It's tough. It's tough. You throw in the fact that the resurrection of Ryan Tannehill continues. Going into Sunday, they're, what, 16-7 and since he became the starter, and that includes three playoff wins. That includes beating the uh, Baltimore Ravens, 14-2 and Baltimore Ravens, beating them soundly last season. That's a situation where they led Kansas City 17-0 in the AFC Championship game on the road before Kansas City exploded. So, Miles Garrett, who's going to be back from being on the COVID-19 list, He's going to have his hands full. And we speak about, you know, non-quarterbacks being impact players in the NFL. You can throw in a Aaron Darnold, of course, from the uh, defensive side of the field. But Miles Garrett is right there. I mean, he's right up there with the Jalen Ramseys of the world and those type of players, the uh, the, uh, T.J. Watts of the world in terms of the impact that he can have, the type of uh, player that he is. But because Tennessee is more of a smash-mouth football team, the guy who ranks third in sacks in the NFL might not be able to get as many opportunities because, as I mentioned before, Tennessee wanting to establish the run. So it'll be an interesting game. I think Tennessee is going to win. Uh, Will there be any type of positivity or will there be any, like, I don't know, um, orange slices and participation trophies if the Cleveland Browns can hang and walk off the field by saying, you know what, we can fucking play with this team. I mean, how far will that go if it's, if, it's a, if it's a close game? If Tennessee blows them out, beats them up, 
then, you know, I don't know the morale moving forward for the, not just for the Cleveland Browns team, but just for the organization and the fan base itself. But, you know, as I mentioned before, with eight and three, even though there are a couple of games behind Pittsburgh, three games behind Pittsburgh, and still having Baltimore nipping at their heels despite the fact that they're now six and five, um, it's a it's a game where if Cleveland loses, depending upon how they lose, I don't think it would be that big of an impact. If they get blown out, and like I said before, it could be a bigger impact that way. But we'll see. That's what makes Sunday so wonderful as far as watching football is concerned. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The other game that I'm interested in, the Indianapolis Colts, 7-4 at the Houston Texans, 4-7. and seven. You know that Houston's 4-3 and three under interim head coach Romeo Cornell after going 0-4? with Bill O'Brien at the head coach. Now, the first three of those four games were brutal. There's no shame in losing to the Kansas City's defending champions. No shame in the game to lose to Pittsburgh, and there's no shame in the game to lose to Baltimore. Shame in the game to lose to Minnesota, though, which dropped them at 0-4 and was kind of like, Bill, you got to go. Um, I, I think he got born. Mainly, I think he got fired because they realized, we fucking traded, the, he traded DeAndre Hopkins for who? But since going 1-5, after losing to uh, Tennessee in overtime, 42-36, a game that they, they should have won if they would have made the two-point conversion, and losing to Green Bay 35-20. to Look, after that, Houston's beating Jacksonville, New England, Detroit, and between losing to Cleveland at Cleveland in a, you know, element-type game, 10-7. to So they're, they're, sniffing, they're sniffing the outside of the playoff spot. I mean, they're two wins away from being a win away from being a major player in the... Uh, in the playoffs. So, Deshaun Watson, I'm going to keep saying his name because despite the fact of the record that the Texans have, I think that he is, should be, I think that he should be talked about in terms of uh, MVP consideration if he continues to play this way. Not saying that he's going to win it, but I think in terms of speaking about it, bringing it up in the discussion, even if it's going to be for a hot second, I think the way that he's playing, despite the fact that they're three games under uh, uh, 500, I think the shot, uh, Deshaun is playing that type of ball to where he should be mentioned in MVP uh, discussions. Um, he's been great. He's, he's, ever since O'Brien has been fired, he's been unleashed. I mean, he's, he's had a 120.3 passer rating since week five, which holds the rest of the season. It would be the third highest passer rating among qualified QBs after week five in NFL history. That's a Vince Scully stat for you, huh? His best wide receiver, though, it's going to be hard because his best wide receiver, Wolf Fuller, is going to be suspended. He's suspended for the rest of the season because he violated the NFL's policy on performance-enhancing drugs. And you're also speaking about the starting quarterback for the Texans, Bradley Roby. He's also done for the year because he violated the performance-enhancing uh, protocol for the NFL. So you're speaking about T.Y. Hilton for the Indianapolis Colts eating the Houston Texans for lunch, breakfast, and dinner, and in-between meals from what he's done in his 16 career games against Houston. He's caught 85 passes for over 1,500 yards and 10 touchdowns. And now uh, Texas, the Houston Texans don't have their best cornerback to line up against them. Bad news, bad news, bad news. So, look, Indy doesn't have their best player available. Again, DeForest Buckner, he's still on the COVID-19 list. We still don't know if he's going to be able to uh, play on Sunday, but... Texans are in some trouble. Texans are in some trouble without Wolf Fuller. I mean, um, 
Deshaun turned him into a really competent wide receiver against Detroit. He caught seven passes for a buck 40. But you're taking a look right now at the Texans' playoff position. They need a miracle just to get into contention. They're one game behind the Patriots, two games behind Las Vegas and Baltimore, and three games behind Miami and Indy, who occupy the number six and seven seeds in the playoffs. Seven teams, the top seven seeds make the playoffs. So they've got to be like some type of major catastrophe uh, with the Colts and the Dolphins and the Ravens and even the Raiders for the Texans to even think about making the playoffs. But as I mentioned before on my last podcast, if Detroit, or excuse me, if uh, Houston can get to 8-8, eight and 7-9, eight, 9-7, and seven, and Deshaun continues to play like he's playing, I know they're currently tied for 11th with the Denver Broncos, but even if he can bring them up to ninth or something like that with a 500 record or above, yeah, man, let people know that Deshaun Watson was considered for MVP and let that shine uh, glow and glow and glow because Deshaun Watson, franchise quarterback. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Last game I want to touch on in the NFL, my games of interest, the LA Rams 7-4 playing against the, or at the Arizona Cardinals, 6-5. Both teams coming off bad losses, both on game-ending field goals. Arizona losing to uh, the Patriots, 2017. The Rams losing at home to uh, the San Francisco 49ers. What was it, 27-24, 30-27, something like that. So I'm interested in the matchup between Jalen Ramsey and DeAndre Hopkins. That's going to be pretty good. I'm wondering if, The Rams are going to be able to run the football against the Arizona defense that's given up 123 yards per game. Um, The quarterback for, (laughs) I actually mentioned one time, what game was that? I think it was the game, what game afterwards was I talking about Kyler Murray being considered for the MVP if he continues to play like he's playing? That's the game where, it was against Buffalo, where uh, Hopkins saved his ass by making that uh, incredible catch. But, um... He's, he's got himself a sore shoulder, so we don't know what's going to be about that. So we'll see if uh, he's going to be getting any type of running plays or anything like that. But that's the other game that I'm interested in. The Rams and the Cardinals, big game for both of those teams. For the Rams getting back to their perch atop the NFC West and for the Cardinals to get themselves back into playoff contention. Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hey, look, um, time for me to uh, put on my Superman cape. Time for me to take off the, the uh, glasses. Time for me to go into the phone booth. Time to uh, take off my uh, shirt so I can show the S on my chest. Time for me to uh, rescue Chris Collinsworth. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Made a very tame, I'd say, sexist comment during the Wednesday afternoon broadcast of the Baltimore Ravens game against the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers, he said, I'm a fan. Everybody's a fan. I guess he was talking about the uh, Pittsburgh you know, fan base. Everybody's a fan, in particular the ladies that I met. Oh, boy. They had, all, they had really specific questions about the game, and I'm like, wow, you're just blown away about how strong the fans are here in this town. Well, woo, woo, oh, woo, man, that just, he lit, he lit that, he lit that uh, fuse, and it went boom. 
Now, he mentioned the fact that, you know, hey, everybody, the fans here in this town are unbelievable. They're fantastic. They're great. And particularly the ladies. Unbelievable. I can't believe it. Well, woohoo. And Killian, the sports columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, she tweeted, uh, so far this year, Chris Collinsworth has made fun of wearing masks and seems stunned that ladies know about football. Maybe the NFL could fill him in about their viewership demographics. He seems to be a newbie to this game. All right. All right. And I got news for you. Chris Collinsworth knows about, I don't know, infinitely more about football than you do. So stop, please. Julie DeCaro, who's a senior writer editor at Deadspin, she wrote on a site that titled, Dear Chris Collinsworth, I have really, I have, I have some really specific questions about your sexism. All right, all right, look, all right, all right. Annie Apple, she's a writer, journalist, uh, NFL mom. She wrote, black, black woman too. She wrote, still shaking my head that Collinsworth was shocked that women know and watch football, and that we have specific questions about the game. Someone please tell Chris. We do have TVs in the kitchen. All right, all, all right, all right, all right, all right. Michelle Martinelli, she writes for the Win USA Today Sports. That's a very good blog. She tweeted, no dude should seem surprised that women are knowledgeable about things. That's just a good rule to follow whether you are talking about sports or woodworking or interior design or engineering or cooking or astrophysics or whatever. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Ladies, ladies, please. Calm down. Calm down. Now, what Collinsworth said, I wouldn't have said it. Probably would have kept it to myself. I read this, went over this, I'll be the first one to tell you, as a guy who watches football, as a guy who loves football, and as a guy who does a podcast, I'm, when I kind of looked up, looked it up, in terms of women watching sports, I was surprised, I have to admit, I was surprised, according to uh, Tara Sullivan of the Boston Globe, NFL rating numbers continue to show that women are the fastest growing segment of the league's viewing fan base, I had no idea. I had no idea. And no, that doesn't make me a sexist. It doesn't make me that I think that women should be pregnant and in the kitchen and barefoot. I, I had no idea. I don't follow too much the demographics of who watches football and what watches football. My main interest in is in football is which teams are good, which teams are bad. Can the Washington football team please do something to get rid of Daniel Snyder? Can the Washington football team continue to lose so we can get ourselves a franchise quarterback? Can Deshaun Watson continue to play well? Patrick Mahomes is amazing. The Las Vegas Raiders are doing their thing. When are fans going to be allowed to go back to the uh, to the stadiums? Uh, who did what? Who made the most sacks? Who made the most passing yards? Who made the most impactful plays in the game from a day-to-day week-to-week, minute-to-minute assessment and watching and learning and being and caring about the NFL, that's what I focus on. Who watches the game? Who doesn't watch the game? What gender, race, whatever, I don't I don't know. I haven't really put too much time into checking the numbers to see exactly how many women, how many men, how many gays, how many lesbians, how many blacks, how many Jews, how many uh, Republicans, how many... Folks from the Northwest, how many folks from other countries have watched football games? I I haven't done my research on that. I, I'm sorry. That makes me uh, sexist. If that makes me uh, whatever, then guilty as charged. But I never really 
put that much thought and emphasis on women watching football. I, I, I don't care if they watch football or not. I watch football. I don't care if men watch it. I don't care if black people watch it. I don't care if gay people like it. I don't care if, if atheists like it. I, I know that I like it. I know it's a very popular sport, so that's fucking good enough for me. So And, I, and you know what? I think that's also what Chris Collinsworth thinks. I don't think Chris Collinsworth has spent a lot of time you know, going over the f- fact of who watches football and who doesn't. I'm shocked, again. I have a lot of friends who I know. I have a lot of female... I don't have a lot of female friends currently, goddammit. But, you know, throughout my long life here, I, most females that I've known and all that kind of stuff, they don't watch football. They don't watch football. You know, out of the percentage of females that I've known, about 98% of them haven't watched, don't watch football, not interested in football, could care less about football. So, there you go. So, the fact that these numbers are showing that women are the fastest growing segment of People watching football, great, fantastic, wonderful, awesome. But I, I had no idea. Fox, Fox Sports Executive Vice President and Head of Strategy and, a, and Analytics, Mike uh, Mulville, said that we're seeing, what we're seeing is not only women's viewership up, but it's up at a greater rate than that of men. And I hear men whining and complaining all the time because, you know, Colin Kaepernick taking the league and all this other bullshit that they're going to not be watching football anymore, so... Maybe it's a situation where, you know, more men care about that stupid-ass shit than women do, but, you know, women viewership is up. Through week five at Fox, uh, Bowville said that the Sunday NFL package is up 9% among women viewers in the 25 to 54 demographic and 5% among men, and that the Thursday night football package is up 17% among women and 9% among men. He's also said we've been playing, paying close attention to the trend among female viewers because I feel like it's going to have an impact on our future goals of the business of the NFL. Not, I'm not terribly surprised by it because I feel it's a trend that's been a long time coming. Fine. Wonderful. Great. But look, I got, a, I got something to say to the women out here who are going to bash who are going to rake Chris Collinsworth over the coals, who are going to call him a sexist and all this kind of stuff. For all of you women who are doing that, I've got two words for you. Fuck you. Especially fucking white women. I'm through with y'all. I, 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 am, I am really upset with y'all right now. I don't really don't give a fuck what you think right now because upset, disappointed is really the tone that I want to set here. You guys are out here, or you women are out here talking about, oh, Collinsworth the sexist, oh, Collinsworth this, Collinsworth that, you bad man, you bad guy, shame on you, Chris Collinsworth. 55% of you women who are white voted for and voted for Donald Trump in the U.S. elections. Fuck you about complaining and whining about Chris Collinsworth making a semi-lame, probably shouldn't said it, but a very benign comment about women watching football. I mean, you shouldn't have made it. You know, this, that, and the other. But I'm not losing my mind, or I'm not going to Twitter, or I'm not going to call him a sexist. Again, 55% of white women voted for a guy who's a fucking misogynist. Who says, yeah, hey, we're being, you know, one of the great things about being a celebrity is that I can grab women by the pussy and I can get away with it. 55 fucking percent of you women voted for that motherfucker to run our country into the ground and to hell and back for four more fucking years. 
And you want to sit up there and talk about Chris Collinsworth being a sexist? Fuck you. Get the fuck out of my face with that bullshit. 55% of white women voted for that motherfucker. 30% of Latino women voted for that motherfucker. 9% of black women voted for that motherfucker. How fucking Samboish can you be if you're black to vote for that motherfucker? Who has clearly stated, I don't give a damn about you. I don't give a damn about you. 30% of Latino women voted for a motherfucker who is separating their children, putting them in cages. And you're still going to vote for that motherfucker? And yet you're going to sit there and talk about Chris Collinsworth because he made one benign, semi-ridiculous comment concerning women following sports and following football? Get the fuck out of here. Priorities, ladies. Priorities. Now look, 55% of white women voted for that piece of shit in the White House currently for another 50-something days, which means that 45% of women actually had the brains, actually had the common sense, actually had the decency to do the right thing. Same thing with 70% of Latino women. Same thing with 91% of black women. So yeah, I get it. I ain't talking about y'all. But man, please give, give me a break about Chris Collinsworth. I remember back in the day with black women when... Um, when rap, remember when they had Snoop and all this type of stuff, and you know, I don't, I, I don't love them bitches, and I don't love them hoes, and all this, that, this, that, and the other, and they were asking women, black women, it was like, I mean, do you find it offensive that that you know you have these rappers out here calling black women hoes and bitches and all this kind of stuff, and a bitch ain't nothing and all that kind of stuff, and you black women's response was no because he ain't talking about me. I know that he's talking about the, the, the bitches and the hoes and the skanks that he's talking about. Yeah, guess what? This bitches, hoes, and skanks. So he's talking about them. He ain't talking about me. So, man, y'all, women can, like, you know, put that shit in, like, different categories with the, with the quickness. So, look, again, the Chris Collinsworth, what he said, what he said was, I wouldn't have said it. I just would have kept with, hey, you know what? I'm just amazed by the fans here and how knowledgeable they are and how passionate they are. I think it's fantastic. I might have I might have said something like, hey, I think it's fantastic to see the women out here, how how you know how great they are and how knowledgeable they are. I think that's fantastic and I and I think that's wonderful. I might have gone that route and would have put up my middle fingers both on my Twitter account if I would have gotten pushback from that. But for him to be like surprised and all that kind of stuff, I mean, you know, I I, I see it. I see it. I wouldn't have said it because I know what kind of world we live in. But, I mean, and again, no one's calling for Chris Collinsworth to be fired or anything like that. Any kind of that nonsense. But, I mean, Collinsworth had to go on Twitter and talk about, I'm sorry, and this, that, and the other. I wouldn't have. I would have been like, man, you know, I'm surprised that women like sports. Fuck you. If you want to call me sexist, whatever, why don't you go fucking vote for the guy who says he thinks it's so cool that he can get away with putting his, putting his hand on someone's crotch, their, your private areas, how cool that is. Maybe you can go ahead and vote for a guy who determined your future. A guy who, I don't know, I mean, was cheating on his wife while uh, while uh, she was doing some other stuff or while she was, uh, I don't know, whatever the fuck it was. But, but basically, bullshit. White women, y'all, uh-uh, no, no. You see, I don't, you can't see this, but I have two middle, middle fingers up at y'all, especially for the 55% of y'all. Go fuck yourselves when you're talking about sexist and all that kind of stuff. The women of the Me Too movement, get with these fucking losers. Get with these idiots. Get with these jackasses. Unfucking believable The 55%, 30%, and the 9% who decided that, you know what? I'd rather have some guy who is 
completely against where I'm going against. Get the Me Too movement. Get with them. Educate them. And, and don't worry about Chris Collinsworth making some benign statement saying how wonderful. He even said it in a nice way. He wasn't making a joke about it or he wasn't demeaning anybody or he wasn't putting anybody down. He was just like, hey, I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. I was pleasantly surprised. Fine. What's the, what's the big fucking deal, ladies? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Check yourselves, women. The 55% of white women, the 30% of Latino women, the 9% of black women, and whoever, whatever the rest of the uh, racial makeup who voted for that motherfucker that's getting out of the White House now in a couple of weeks or a month or so, check yourselves in terms of your indignation toward people being sexist. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Very quickly, saving the worst for last. <laughs> oh, boy. Georgetown. I still love my team. I still love my team. I, you, you can't call me a front runner. I like the Washington football team. I like the Washington um, Wizards. I like the Washington Nationals. I mean, Washington Capitals, I guess. I mean, you know, whatever. And I love uh, my Georgetown Hoyas. How many of those teams have been, like, elite for the past, I don't know, what, three decades? <sighs> I guess you could say that, uh, what's the word, can I, I don't, I don't know, I guess Georgetown Hoyas basketball right now, embarrassing, pathetic, nowhere to go but up, maybe, might be rock bottom, and I'm not talking about the rock bottom from The Rock, the rock bottom for the program under Patrick Ewing, I don't know, man, could it, could it get worse? This has to be the, I mean, we've had some bad losses in the last three years. I mean, some embarrassing losses, but I don't know if losing to Navy 70 to 62 on Tuesday evening, that if that's not the worst in the Ewing era, it's, it's, it's right there. It's close. I don't know if it beats, I don't know if it beats getting blown out by DePaul a couple of years ago, but man, it, it's close. Six possessions passed before either team got on the board to start the game. John Carter falling, fouling Javon Blair in the act of shooting from behind the arc. So, of course, after about the first four possessions, I was like, oh, it's going to be one of these games. huh?" So Navy led 29-26 at the half. Georgetown finished the first half shooting just 25% from the field, missing 10 of 15 from the three-point range. Navy, on the other hand, starting nobody smaller than 6-7, had a 23-17 advantage on the boards at the half. For the game, I think they outscored Georgetown like 40-22 to 22 in the paint or something like that. Again, Georgetown didn't have anybody, uh, sorry, Navy didn't have anybody over 6-7. <sighs> Second half of play, Georgetown started off pretty strong. Navy hung around. Georgetown went into one of their predictable droughts where they couldn't make a shot. Navy then, you know, ultimately started playing like a Division One basketball team. So down two with 638 left to play. Uh, Davis 
sank a long three-pointer to give Navy the lead for the first time. They wouldn't relinquish it at 61-60. They extended it to three on a goaltend by Timothy Egohefe. Why in the fuck is he still playing at this point in the game? I have no idea. Then a driving layup by Davis gave the midshipman a three-point lead at the five-minute mark, 65-62. Then off a missed three-pointer from Georgetown, surprise, surprise, John Carter sank a three-pointer to put it up 68-62 after me yelling, screaming, throwing, kicking, cursing the Lord and everything else. Um, Navy shredded the Georgetown pivot with an easy basket at the 311 mark to make it in 70-62. Resignation set in, and I just said, we're going to lose the Navy. Hmm. A three-pointer from Jalen Harris brought Georgetown to within six at the 243 mark. Whoop the fucking damn do. But consecutive Georgetown turnovers were converted inside for a 76-68 lead entering the final minute. And I just hated everybody who's ever like lived on planet Earth with the exception of my parents, Raquel Davis, and my goddaughter and his family. Navy shot 60% from the field in the second half. Georgetown was just 5 of 16 from the three-point line in the second half. Navy. Navy. Fucking Navy. Non-scholarship fucking Navy. Had the two best players on the floor by a wide fucking margin. Do you hear that, Jamarco Pickett? Do you hear that, Javon Blair? Do you hear that, Jalen Harris? Do you hear that, Chulier Bile? Do you fucking hear that, Dante Harris? Do you hear that, Cutis Wahab? Navy, non-scholarship Navy, had two of the best players on the floor by a mile. Cam Davis and John Carter. 48 points between them. 18 of 29 shooting from the floor. 8 of 14 from the three-point line. Committed one turnover between them. <laughs> Navy! Navy! Non-scholarship Navy! Patrick Lee Basketball Navy! I mean, could you imagine having those two guys? I mean, if right now we could ship off Jalen Harris and Javon... If we could trade Jalen Harris and Javon Blair for Cam Davis and John Carter, I swear... We might finish like seventh or eighth in the conference. Now, with our coaching, who knows? But we we would do better with those two guys if we could trade seniors. How many people right now who are Georgetown fans wouldn't trade Jamarco Pickett and Javon Blair for Cam Davis and John Carter right now? I'd do that move twelve out of ten times. I would do that move eight days a week. I would do that move twenty-five hours a day. I would do that move three hundred and seventy days a year. Javon Blair, Jamarco Pickett each had 17 points. Cutis Wahab had 16 points, 7 rebounds. Now, Jalen Harris did play well. I mean, I will give him that. He had double figures. He was 3 of 5 for the 3-point line. A step back 3. I was like, what the fuck are you? Oh, hey, that's pretty good. So he did hit. He did play well in the second half. 7 assists. Um, limited turnover. So Jalen Harris, he did well. He did well. He did well. Couldn't guard anybody, but he did well. But the team shot 42% from the field, 32% from the three-point line for the game. Um, Coach Ewing, I'm I'm backing you. I'm still backing you. But that was a horrendous coaching game. I I, I don't know. I mean, that was bad. 
That was bad. Kobe Clark gets 10 rebounds the first game, and he only plays seven minutes the second game. He doesn't play in the second half. I thought that um, I thought that um, uh, Colin Holloway against UMBC played better than Trudy A. Bile. I mean, you continued to go with him instead of play, playing a, uh, a Colin Holloway, who I thought played pretty well. You couldn't increase Kobe Clark's. I mean, it seemed like Kobe Clark and Trudy A. Bile have the same type of game. Energy guys, rebound guys, hustle guys, defensive guys. I mean, Chudy A. Ball, I mean, he threw up some shots from the three-point line. I was like, what in the holy fuck are you doing? Jermarco Pickup threw up a shot right side, second half shot that hit the high backboard. High backboard, way outside the rim. Wasn't even close. Georgetown threw up some shots that were mind-blowingly, laughably, Unbelievably ridiculous. It, it, it was it was it was embarrassing. It was like it, it was beyond embarrassing. They dropped. It's like they were. It was like if someone was playing. If Kansas was playing a, like a really sorry D three school, and a D three player drove in like he was some five eight non athletic guy going up against some first round NBA lottery pick, and it's like all right, try to get off your shot without getting blocked. And he tried to do all these consternations and twisting and all this kind of stuff, all this type of move to throw up a shot, and the ball wouldn't even come close to the rim. I swear, I think I counted for the game maybe eight or nine shots from Georgetown that looked like that. No, no chance of going in. It looked ridiculous. It was just mind-blowingly like, how are you still a Division One basketball player? Look, you play. You're a scholarship basketball player at a high major university. You motherfuckers can play. No matter how bad you look, you can play. You're great basketball players. But geez, oh, flip for the level that we're playing at. What in the hell was that? Kobe Clark, Chudier Vile, Timothy Eagle Hefe, Dante Harris, the bench players for Georgetown. They shot 0 for 11 from the field. 0 for 5 from the three-point line. One fucking point. One point combined. No field goals. One fucking point. I don't know, man. They play West Virginia at home on Sunday. I'm going to watch. I know we're going to get our asses kicked. I mean, West Virginia hung with Gonzaga for most of the game, who's the number one team in the country, and looks really, really good. We're, we're, we're going to get destroyed. And this is going to be a down year. I know this was going to be a down year. Everybody was preparing for a down year. And, and look, it's one game. It's the second game of the season. You've got nine new players. Uh, you started practice late because of the pandemic you're living in ridiculous situations to where you go straight from the gym to your room i mean this is just i mean this year is just you know everything is just thrown into whack thrown out of thrown out of whack so for of all the years for georgetown to have a bad team and not try to improve and try to gain the maximum amount of potential from this team i mean you put that in a in a situation like this I knew we I, I had a strong indication. I had a strong inclination that we were going to lose the Navy, but it's like saying it and it actually happening. It's like two totally different things. I, I know we're going to get blown. I just want a competitive game. If we could keep the loss to West Virginia between twelve and eighteen, I'll be happy. Now, of course, we'll lose by fifteen, and I'll be crying uncontroll- uncontrollably for like four hours afterwards. But no, seriously, man, realistically. It's like, just play hard. Just fucking play hard. 
That's all I want for you guys. Just, just play hard. And coach, put in guys who are going to play hard. We ain't making the tournament this year. Yeah, I, I know you want to... I know that you want to win basketball games. I get it. But come on, coach. I mean, let's just be real here. We ain't going to the tournament. We don't even know if there's going to be a tournament. But even if there is, we ain't going to the NCAA tournament. We're, we're, we're picked last for a reason. You said it yourself. That if you were a coach of the other team, you would have picked us last. So you, you know that there's no like, you know there's no like miracle here. Put me in some guys who just want to play hard, even if they're not ready. I mean, <laughs> look, Kobe Clark as a basketball player has a lot of work to do in terms of his skill set, especially at the offensive end. But that guy plays fucking hard. I mean, he plays hard. So if he's going to be a train wreck on offense and he might not know what to do on defense, I mean, at least he's playing hard. At least he's trying hard. I just want five guys who are going to try hard. I mean, what's the big deal if we lose by 15 or 40? A loss is a loss. I mean, there are no bad losses this year, Coach. We ain't getting in the NIT. We ain't getting in the NCAA. So what's the point? Who cares? about whether or how badly we lose. We are not beating West Virginia. We are not beating Connecticut. We are not beating Creighton. We are not beating Villanova. Those teams are going to embarrass us. There is no rainbow. There is no NCAA birth possible. There is no avenue for postseason play. There is none. We're not talented enough. We're not good enough. We're not experienced enough. And this year's too fucked up to even try to, try to, you know, Get some talent from this group to make it to where we're even contenders. It ain't happening. So let's just, I just want to see the young cats coming in play. I, fuck it, put in TJ Berger and let him get eaten alive. Put in Jabari Sibley and let him get eaten alive. Uh, Sibley, the, the top 125 recruit. Put him in the game and let him get eaten alive. Put Colin Holloway, that's your roster, man. That's your, that's your team. That's your squad for the future. You have a whole bunch of freshmen. Two sophomores, and the rest are seniors. Chudie Bile ain't doing shit. Jalen Harris, give him some time. Jamarco, Javon, okay, I get it. But, man, don't, why are you playing those guys 38, 35 minutes at the expense of a Kobe Clark, at the expense of a Colin Holloway, at the expense of a TJ Berger? I, I, I don't know, man. You're, look, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I'm not a coach. As Greg Popovich said, oh, you coaching now? Okay, good, don't. So, look, I, I, I don't know, man. It's your team. You're in the practices. You've had 15 years of coaching experience in the NBA. You know much more about this team than I do. It's just frustration talking. It is. And I'm, I'm quite sure that you're more frustrated than I am. Same with the team. At least I hope the team is. So you're doing a lot more to try to fix this problem. You're taking these issues and these situations home with you. And you look, you're stressing out on this a lot more than I am. No matter how bad you get, I'm still going to be doing what I'm doing. This could cost you your job. So I get it. I get it. You're going to try to do everything humanly possible to turn this around. I just, I just hope you do, man. I just hope you do. For being a long Georgetown fan, I hope you do. And Pat Ewing, head coach of the Georgetown Hoyas, I trust because he knows more than me. So there you go. All right, that was my rant about Georgetown. Of course, I'll be back on the uh, next podcast crying about, I can't believe we got beat by 35 to West Virginia. <laughs> Pat Ewing isn't going to get fired, y'all. He's got a good recruiting class com- coming in. I-, I hope. I hope. I hope Jalen Bingsley, I hope uh, Bingsley and, 
and the rest, Jordan Riley and those guys are watching the TV going, Jesus Christ, this fucking team sucks. Is there any way I can get out of this commitment? Am I going to be sitting on the bench like uh, TJ and Colin and Jabari and Kobe? Jeez. Coach, you need to call them up. Coach or Coach Kirby, somebody, call them up and be like, hey, man, do you understand why we need you? I mean, call the kid from uh, Chicago who's now over at, um, at a grad school. Uh, getting ready, prep school, call that man up and be like, now do you know why we need you next season, please? You see the time that's going to be available to you, please? Don't deviate. Don't wander. Don't, uh, you know, don't do anything rash and decommit. Please, 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 like I'm James Brown. All right, let me get out of here. I'm going to end with a special dedication um, Jesus is loved by the Commodores. Donnie Simpson on his show, WKYS 93.9, when I was growing up, would always end his radio show with this song. One of my favorites, Lionel Richie, writing genius. His daughter is a nutcase. I don't know if she still is, but um, yeah, Jesus is love. Y'all take it easy. Have a good one. Peace. Music. The G.